It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and tonight, in this Women's History Month, we'll hear from Judy, Candy, and Rebecca, teenaged Judy Foster on A Date with Judy, Private Eye Candy Matson, Yukon 28209, and real-life steel tycoon Rebecca Lukens on The Cavalcade of America. And we're as upset and angry about missing baseball's opening day as you are, so we'll try to soothe you with the voice of Red Barber. Plus Gunsmoke, Dragnet, and Robert E. Sherwood's 1940 Pulitzer Prize-winning play about Russia invading one of its neighbors. Sound familiar? On NBC Star Playhouse. Now, breathe deeply, relax, don't give a thought to anything that went down in your life last week, don't worry about anything that may come up beginning tomorrow, and instead, set your imagination free here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. We want to start out by thanking everyone who called or clicked to support us during WAMU's spring membership campaign last week. It means so much to us and ensures that we'll be able to continue bringing you your old-time radio favorites. Like this suspenseful adventure, The Burma Red Matter, from May 6, 1962, CBS, and yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar. Well, at long last. What? I say it's high time. It is, huh? Well, isn't it? I don't know. High time for what? High time he answered that phone. And listen. Well? This is Jimmy Bartell. Oh, Jimmy. You know, over here at Mono Guarantee Insurance. Of course I know. How are you? Well, what happened to you, Johnny? Where have you been? I've been trying to reach you for about four weeks now. Didn't you try my call service? Yeah, I tried you. Huh? Oh, no, I uh, I guess I kind of forgot about that. Oh, well, if you had, you'd have found out that last week I was at Grand Canyon, the week before in Corpus Christi, the week before that in Knoxville, Tennessee, and before that, up in Boston. Yeah, sure, gallivanting around the country while I've been sitting here up to my neck in trouble, beating my brains out, working my head off. <laughs> Sounds to me like you need a plastic surgeon. What? What's the problem, Jimmy? The Burma Red, Johnny. The what? You heard me, the Burma Red. Jimmy, uh, are you sure you want me and not the State Department? Yeah, I'm sure. All right, I'll bite. Who is the Burma Red? Not who, but what. Well? And listen, we carry the insurance. Half a million dollars worth. You hear that, fella? Half a million. I am deeply impressed. And, baby, if you can't get it back for us, that's exactly what we're going to have to hand over. In cold, hard cash. 500 Gs. Well, maybe I had better get to work on it. Good. And I don't mean to tell you what your commission will be if you do recover it. What else do you think I'm thinking of? Then the job is yours, Johnny. And, brother, I sure hope that you can find it and get it back. The Burma Red. Right. Uh, just one thing, Jimmy, if you don't mind. Sure, Johnny. Before I start gallivanting around the country, as you put it, looking for this thing... Yeah? Don't you think that it might be nice if I have some slight idea, some inkling of what it is, this Burma Red? I told you. I told you I... Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay. Uh, come on over here and I'll... I'll tell you all I know about it. Okay. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to Mono Guarantee Insurance Company, Home Office, Hartford, Connecticut. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the Burma Red matter.
Expense account item one. $1.20 for a cab from my apartment to Jimmy Bartell's office in the Spear Building, down on the square. Jimmy's specialty, incidentally, is property insurance. Especially where fine artwork is concerned. And in this case... Yeah, Johnny, four solid weeks I buzzed that phone of yours and what I thought of you for not being there to answer it wouldn't be fit to print. All right, I'm here now, so stop bellyaching. But maybe you're too late, fella. He's already gotten out of country with it. The Burma Red. That's right, the Burma Red. Which is what? I told you, Johnny, it's... it's it. Oh, yeah, that's right, I didn't. Now, listen, I'm listening. It was brought over here a couple of years ago as part of a collection by some countess or other. Got written up in all the picture magazines. Do I hear a slight echo? Echo? Yes, from the case I had on my hands last week. I don't know, because I don't know what you had a case of. But listen. Go on. Having been a part originally of the Buckingham Collection over there in England, you know. Well, as you might expect, it was picked up here by Winkler and Winkler. The big jewelry outfit down in New York. The same. Oh, then I do hear an echo. So it's a piece of jewelry and it's been stolen from them. No. The same as the Otara's necklace I recovered last week. No, again. For Northeast indemnity. No? No, Johnny. It's just a single unmounted stone, a ruby. But so help me, it's big enough to choke a horse. And now it's gone. When did you say it was stolen from them? I didn't, because it wasn't. They'd sold it to that wealthy old Mrs. Harvey Larriman Brittingham. Lives out in the edge of town. Oh, I see. But four weeks ago, somebody neatly chiseled open her wall safe and walked off with it. Chiseled? Okay, blew it. What's the difference? Plenty. Knowing a safecracker's method can help a lot in pinning him down. Oh, the police think they know who did it, all right. Well, what do you need me for? To get that stone back. But if they already know who did it... But they couldn't prove it. Sure, the modus operandi, the way the safe was blown, it pointed straight to him and nobody else. But also, he was known to be here in town. Who? But they couldn't pin it on him. He had himself a perfect alibi. Who, Jimmy? So maybe it was rigged. They couldn't break it. Jimmy... But, Johnny, it had to be Oscar Mayfield. Mayfield? They held him as long as they could. Went through everything he owns. Checked out every contact he made while he was here in Hartford. And all that got him was nothing. And not very much of that. I'll say this. If Oscar Mayfield, the old master, made that heist... So what could they do but let him traipse merrily on back to New York where he's been living lately? Look, Jimmy. But I figure, despite the police report and all the work they did... I figure that somehow Mayfield got away with that ruby. Jimmy, I'm inclined to think you may be right. I know Oscar Mayfield. He's clever. I've tangled with him before. And, uh, come to think of it, he made a promise to me once. Mayfield made a promise? Mm-hmm. What was it, Johnny? That if I ever tried to interfere with him again... Yeah, well, he'd see to it that I had a very nice funeral. <laughs> Expense account item two. Sixty-five cents for a cab to police headquarters where, uh, after some inquiries, I ended up talking with Sergeant Holly Holcomb. He wasn't very encouraging. Sure, Dollar. He was known to be in town. Known to have tried to leave right afterward. Trademark he left on the wall safe was his. Plain as a nose in your face. Mm Mm-hmm. And we pride ourselves on knowing the M.O.s of all the safe men within a thousand miles. Yes, I know you do. And rightly so. But we couldn't pin a thing on him. All the direct evidence we didn't have on him because of his alibi apparently checking out all the way. We simply couldn't hold him on nothing more than suspicion any longer. Especially with that smart mouthpiece he dragged in. If he tried, he would have sued us from here to kingdom come. I mean, if you know Oscar Mayfield. Only too well, Sergeant. You know what I mean. I suspect him just as much as you do. But until we have something definite, some real tangible clue... Well, anyhow, he 
Went back to New York. Have you notified the police down there? Sure, sure I am. Lieutenant Singer at the 18th Precinct. And uh, isn't he an old friend of yours? Randy Singer? He certainly is. Well, I haven't heard a word from him, not in over a week now, so why don't you call him? Or better still, go down there and see him. See what goes. All right, Sergeant. Maybe I'll do that. There was some more talk between us, and Sergeant Holcomb gave me every detail of the job. Told me what they'd found and what they'd done about it. Yes, all the completely unconfirmed evidence pointed straight to Oscar Mayfield. Unconfirmed and unconfirmable evidence because of the man's unshakable alibi. Item three, 85 cents for a phone call to Lieutenant Randy Singer, 18th Precinct, New York Police Department. You mean to say you just now found out about that heist? That's right, Randy. I just found out. See, Johnny, if you didn't spend so much time gallivanting all over the place, you might be of some use around here. You, uh, you didn't get a promotion for all the gallivanting I did for you last week. Oh, darn it, I guess I should have worked that case myself. <laughs> well, how about this Mayfield? You've kept an eye on him? I've done everything but tap his phone line. And? Nothing, Johnny, absolutely nothing. You just didn't get on this one soon enough. I know what you mean. Unless he's changed these last couple of years... Oscar Mayfield is not one to hold on very long to whatever he's lifted. Right. And if he did snatch that stone, you can be sure he passed it on and collected for it long before this. And yet there's always the chance. So, in the case of a big hunk of rock like that, it means one of two things. The guy who bought it from him is either carting it out of the country and far away, or having it cut up into little ones that nobody will ever be able to identify. I guess Mayfield would have passed it along in one big fat hurry. I know we couldn't find it. Anywhere on or around him, we tried every trick. And I mean trick, Johnny. Until he started to yell at the D.A. and the D.A. started yelling at us. Uh, Johnny, I understand. Uh, I've just heard this, mind you. Yeah? Well, I understand that one of my boys... Oh, well, he was off duty, of course. So it was completely unofficial, you understand? Yeah. Well, I heard he even went so far as to rule Mayfield one night in the alley back of a nightclub. What? Not a sign of that, Ruby. Randy, if the department ever catches up with these unofficial tricks Look, of Look, I told you, Johnny, I only heard that. But I know myself it isn't hidden anywhere in his apartment. Oh, you do? I do. Randy, didn't you and your clever little boys completely overlook the Otara's necklace that was hidden in the back of a camera just about a week ago? Oh, now that was different. So that I had to get lucky and find it for you? Okay, okay. So you happen to guess right. For once... So maybe I better get on down your way and look around for myself. Tell me, where does Mayfield live? A hotel apartment over at 614 East 49th. But it's no use, Johnny. Why? Just because he's always gotten rid of things quickly in the past? No. Nope. Or because you knuckleheads couldn't find the ruby? No, Johnny. You haven't been able to hold him on suspicion and make a real investigation? I mean because by the time you can get here, he won't be. All right, then I'll grab the first plane I can and... What was that? Your pal Mayfield has paid up his rent and he's moving out. He's got himself a reservation on a plane to Mexico City this afternoon. Uh-oh. By the time you get to his place, he'll be gone. Randy. Yeah? Can't a genius like you come up with some excuse to hold him there for me? Oh, flattery will get you nowhere, Johnny. The answer's no. I've run out of tricks. Anything else I might try would only get me into hot water. No, wait, Randy. Yeah? Maybe I know a little trick to hold him over. Well, don't expect any official help from me or the department if you do come down it. What kind of a trick, Johnny? What's the difference? Now, look, if you're thinking you're doing something else... Oh, illegal, Randy, how you That would talk? only get us in order to clamp down on you. Don't worry about it. I'll be in touch. 
Illegal? I don't know why, but I'd suddenly remember that during my run-in with Mayfield a couple of years ago, there'd been talk about a man who was fencing his stuff. A man who had been only vaguely identified as Hugo. The last name had never come to light. Okay, maybe that name still meant something to him. If so, it justified item four. A dollar twenty-six for a telegram to Mayfield. It read as follows. Urgent that before you make any deal, you call me immediately at Plaza 39970. And I signed it, Hugo. And I had them put a rush on it, hoping it would give me some much-needed time. Item five, six dollars for a cab to Bradley Field. Item six, ten dollars and twelve cents for a plane to New York. And when I got there, item seven is five eighty for a taxi to six fourteen East Forty Ninth Street. It was a smart, good-looking apartment hotel, which is uh, more than I can say for the stuffy, uniform doorman. Mister Mayfield, did you say? Uh, that's right, Mister Oscar Mayfield. I- is he still here? Is he in? Uh, whom shall I say is calling, sir? Don't. Uh, don't. Just give me his apartment number. Your name, please. Oh, don't worry about it. I'm sorry, but I must have your name, sir. It's Dollar. Now, what's the apartment number? Dollar. Hmm. Very well. No, 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 you don't. Just put the phone down. I beg your pardon. It's granted. Now, the number of his apartment. Not unless I announce you, sir. Now, look, I, uh, I am a special investigator. Oh, you are? Yes, and if you'd like to call the police and check on me, only I haven't time. Look. Look here, these are my credentials. And I tell you, sir, that unless I... Oh. Oh, I see. Uh, Mr. Johnny Dollar. That's right. The insurance investigator. Yes. I didn't know. Well, you do now. Well, nonetheless, Mr. Dollar... Just I'm give a... me Mayfield's apartment number, please. Now, what is it? Uh, well, it's 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 uh, 7G. Okay, thank you. And I'll phone that you're on your way up, sir. You do, and I'll break your neck. Seven G. Just in case he remembers what he once promised, I better make sure that this thing is working properly. Mr. Mayfield? Mayfield? Oh, got it if he's already flown the coop. Ah, hmm, he left it wide open. Mr. Mayfield? Hmm. The well-furnished living room was empty. So was a kind of study off at one side and a little bar kitchenette beyond it. As for the bedroom in the back, well, as I started through the door, I caught sight of a couple of handbags in front of a chest of drawers. So he was still here. What I didn't catch sight of, though, was the gun shoved around the side of the door into my back. Just lift them up slowly, Dollar. Slowly. While I see whether you're armed. Ah. Yes, here it is. Thank you. Okay, Mayfield. Now over there. Next to the bed. 
Go on. Sure. Sure, why not? Are you happy now? Dollar, I made you a promise once. It's kind of foolish of you, wasn't it? I'm going to keep that promise now. You're going to pull off a shot in a place like this? This apartment is absolutely soundproof. One of the reasons I selected it. I see. Well, are you ready? And it looks like you were expecting me, Mayfield. Oh, yes, Dollar, I was. You see, I figured right from the beginning that you might be called in on this case. Then you do have the Burma Red, the ruby. Now? Oh, of course not. You should know that I wouldn't hold on to a thing like that. Let's say it's been uh, successfully disposed of. And why do you hang around here? Because I'm waiting for... Yes? I was waiting for you. Mm. To settle my old score with you. When I received that silly telegram, I was certain that you would be here. No? You mean I pulled a boo-boo? Your old pal Hugo is dead? I mean that ridiculous number you gave me to call. It's too bad. I thought it was a pretty good idea to keep you trying it until I could get here. Oh, I'll confess it did make me change my reservation to a later plane. But after all, when I got nothing but a busy signal eight times in a row, I uh, naturally called the operator. And she told you? Yes. That it's a number used for testing. That a busy signal is all it ever gets. Hmm. <laughs> Obviously a trick, then. Worthy of you. So I waited for you. And when the doorman, following my explicit instructions, called me, told me you'd arrived, I... Oh, but I'm wasting time. What's more, I'm expecting someone else. So, Dollar, this is it. Expecting me, maybe? What? Randy! Just drop it right there, Mayfield. Huh? Gently, now. All right, now Dollar's again. Now, sit over there in that chair next to the window. All right, anything you say, Lieutenant. Oh, Randy, you're like the U.S. Marines. Here, you, uh, you better keep this gun of his. You know, I'm just glad you got careless and left that front door open out there. I thought I heard a door close just before you made your dramatic entrance. But how come, Randy? What do you mean, how come? Well, from what you said on the phone... So what? I'm off duty. Any reason I shouldn't just uh, kind of drop around for a visit? Oh, I'm glad you did. You know something, Johnny? When? So am I. Now, I'll probably hate myself in the morning for saying this, but <laughs> I've waited a long time for a chance to return some of the favors you've done me over the years. That I've done you. Well, Mayfield? I'm afraid your so-called visit is completely pointless, Lieutenant. You must know very well that you won't find the ruby around here or anything to even remotely connect me with it. Do I need to after the little party I walked in on? Yeah, that's right. Huh? You can stop smiling now. Oh, very well, very well, if you insist on booking me for an alleged attack on Johnny Dollar with a, quote, deadly weapon, unquote. Let us go down to your station house and have done with it. This Grand Central Station? Shall we? Shall we go, Lieutenant? You just stay in that chair, Mayfield, while I... No, Randy, while I answer the door. Okay, but leave this one open so I can hear. Right. Yes? Yeesh, what a fancy layout this is. Who are you? Uh, you Oscar Mayfield? Well, who did you expect to find here? Santa Claus? Yeah, well, no, no, no. Look, look Mr. Mayfield, you, you mind putting down a gun, huh? Not till I'm sure you're okay. Come inside. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. All right, now, what's your name? Yeah, uh, Rosie, uh, Rosie Gilliam. Look, you can frisk me. I'm clean. And that package? Well, you know, it's from the boss. It's from Hugo. It's what you've been waiting for. Oh, it's from Hugo, huh? Yeah, yeah, sure, honestly. He said I should deliver it and get a receipt, then maybe you'd hand me a fin or a tenner. Oh, he did, huh? Yeah. Maybe I better make sure that it's, um, whatever he was supposed to send over to me. Well, do you think I'd meddle with it and maybe do myself out of these delivery jobs he gives me and pays me so good? You're on the level? Yeah, yeah, honest. If you hit it. Now, this contains 
And I think it does. By the way, uh, where does Hugo hang out? Well, how should I know? All I know is he calls me now and then, meets me at some place, and gives me something I should deliver. I guess you're okay, then. Sit down there while I take a look at this. Yeah, sure, sure. We'll just see now. You know, you're the first gentleman who ever opened one of those deliveries in front of me. Am I? Yeah, you're the very first. Holy jumping, look at that loot. Where is he waiting to pick up the receipt, Rosine? I don't know. He only hunts me up when he's ready. Look at all that dough. What kind of a receipt, Rosie? He said you'd know what kind. Oh, man, would you look at that? Would you look at it? All right, I'll write you one. Yeah, maybe uh, <clears throat> maybe I could have a 20 for bringing it. I'll give you a receipt to Mr. Hugo. Um, let's see, how is it now that he spells his last name? You don't know, Mr. Mayfield? Well, don't you know? I should know how to spell Hemperschlag. Hemperschlag. So that's it. Yeah. And now, wait a minute, Listen, you you are Mayfield, ain't you? All right, Randy. Randy? Randy who? Lieutenant Singer of the police. Come in, Randy. The police? Oh, no, I've been talking. Mr. Hugo will kill me. No, Rosie, I don't think he'll ever get the chance. I just take it easy, Rosie. Oh, no, 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 listen, cop, I was... We'll give you all the protection you need after we sign you in at headquarters. Rosie, whatever your name is, you hairbrained idiot. Just take it easy, Mayfield, and sit down. You too, Rosie. Well, now, look at all this beautiful money. Randy, unless I'm awfully wrong, it's payment to Mayfield for the ruby. And if you can locate a Hugo with the unlikely name of Hemperschlag, or maybe you'll save us the trouble, Mayfield. After all, now that we have his name, and who knows, if you talk, maybe the judge won't throw the whole book at you. Well? <sighs> okay, Dollar. I know when I'm licked, I'll talk. Mr. Hugo Hemperschlag, believe it or not, turned out to be a gem setter for the famous jewelry house of Winkler & Winkler, where he couldn't help knowing about all the important stuff brought into this country, and with the know-how to break it up, after he'd arranged to have it stolen. Expense account total? Well, in view of the commission I'll get on this one, forget it. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar is written by Jack Johnstone, produced and directed by Bruno Zerato Jr., music supervision by Ethel Huber. Sound Patterns by Joseph Cabibo. Johnny Dollar is played by Mandel Kramer. Also featured in our cast were Paul McGrath as Oscar Mayfield, Al Hodge as Lieutenant Randy Singer, Ivor Francis as Jimmy Bartell, Jack Grimes as Rosie, Santos Ortega as the Sergeant, Mercer McLeod as the Doorman. Be sure to join us next week, same time, same station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Roger Foster speaking. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, and The Burma Red Matter from the spring of 1962 and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Say, if you missed our show last week, you may not know about our movie night. On Thursday, May 19th, at the AFI Silver Theater in Silver Spring at 8 p.m., we'll be offering a rare screening of the Big Broadcast of 1938, starring W.C. Fields, Bob Hope, Martha Ray, and a whole pile of old-time radio stars. If you call now, 800-248-8850, or go to wamu.org and click on Donate, for a sustaining membership of $30 a month, or a one-time gift of 360 bucks, you can request two tickets to the event, plus a special pre-show chat between me and NPR's Scott Simon, the host of Weekend Edition Saturday. But this offer's only good till March 31st. So to get in on it, call 800-248-8850, 800-248-8850,
or go to WAMU.org. Well, Major League Baseball team owners and players reached a collective bargaining agreement this month, and opening day is next week. But it was supposed to be this week. In 1990, another opening day was pushed back a week due to another owner's lockout, and NPR stepped into the void with a special broadcast. The great Hall of Fame play-by-play announcer, Red Barber, had by that time established himself as a presence on NPR's Morning Edition in wonderful, brief weekly visits with the show's host, Bob Edwards. On what would have been opening day, the two men visited for an entire hour, and they took calls from listeners throughout the country. With a taste of Mr. Barber's inimitable play-by-play style in a Brooklyn Dodger broadcast, here's an excerpt of that April 2, 1990 special produced by Mark Schramm, NPR's opening day. Ebbets Field, Brooklyn, USA. The sun is trying to break through. The field is in excellent shape. Groundkeeper Ed Durham has done his uh, most able job. Bankhead is on the mound. Campanella back to the plate. Hodges at first. Robinson at second. Reese at short. Cox at third. Gene Hermansky getting his first start is in left field. Third in center is Duke Snatter. The right fielder is Carl Ferrello. Nice crowd on hand. But there are plenty of seats and people in the neighborhood are still coming. This is the first of a doubleheader. The 3 nothing pitch, fastball in there, and it's 3-1. So all you folks who are in the vicinity, just get right on your mules and come right on in. That was May of 1950, Red, with the team that uh, was really the nucleus of the team uh, Roger Kahn called uh, the Boys of Summer. Newcomb yeah. and Campanella, Snyder, Ferrillo. Just a terrific team. And Pee Wee Reese, of course. When you think about that infield... Uh... Gil Hodges at first base, uh, Jackie Robinson uh, at second, Pee Wee Reese at short, uh, Billy Cox at third. I don't know how you could find a better one. <laughs> it was hard, hard to hit a ball through there, and uh, they also did their own share of hitting. We go now to Los Angeles. Hi. Uh, my question relates to uh, my hero, Vin Scully. You personally hired Vin uh, as your color man. Is that right, Red? It's a very... Interesting story. There's a, there's a sentence uh, in an old prayer for travelers that uh, says, uh, in effect, uh, amid the changes and chances of this mortal life, Ben Scully is by far our best baseball play-by-play man. No, nobody even, even close to him. And, and he has been for some, so many years. Well, if a lot of those things hadn't happened, Scully might not ever have gotten to a microphone. And when I say that, I mean, uh, I became ill in 1948. I, uh, I hemorrhaged violently in Pittsburgh, and I was out for six weeks. And Mr. Ricky had to get somebody to work with Connie Desmond to, to do the Dodger games. And he uh, had very good reports on Ernie Harwell down at uh, Atlanta. So uh, Mr. Ricky called Earl Mann, who had the Atlanta club, and said, uh, I need Harwell to come up here and uh, help Connie broadcast. And uh, Earl Mann didn't hesitate. He said, Mr. Ricky, I need a catcher. So <laughs> Howell came to Brooklyn, and uh, Cliff Napper, uh, a catcher, was, was sent to Atlanta. So that, that's the start of, of this series. Well, 
I uh, recovered and came back to work, and that was the beginning of the first three-man team in uh, play-by-play broadcasting, radio and television. And it was a good one. Ernie Harwell, Connie Desmond, Red Barber. And at the end of the uh, season of 1949, uh, we were doing football. We had a game late in the season coming up uh, in Boston, and uh, we couldn't find an announcer up there to do it. And I remembered that Vince Scully had come to CBS uh, looking for work. He had graduated from Fordham, and he um, had worked as a summer replacement down at our CBS station in Washington. And he came into uh, the studios in New York, and he talked to me. We didn't carry a sports staff in New York then, and there was absolutely nothing that I had for him. And I talked to him and had a pleasant visit. And uh, there was so little uh, to, to be done that I didn't even take his name. Uh, I didn't know his name or his phone number or anywhere else. So this thing at Boston came along, and we needed just somebody to, to do a little spot up there. And I remembered this young uh, red-headed man. And I went around to uh, Ted Church, the director of news, who had brought Scully into my office. And I said, who was that young man you brought around? He said, I didn't take his name down. <laughs> then I remembered that he had said he had gone to Fordham. And Jack Coffey, the director of athletics at Fordham, had a fabulous memory. He even remembered birthdays. So I said uh, to John Dahr, my associate at CBS, I said, call Coffee up at Fordham and find out who this red-headed fellow is that graduated. And Coffee came back, Scully, and the phone number. So we, we called him, and he came in, and we sent him to Boston. He did, a, he did an excellent job, excellent job. And uh, they put him on the roof in the wind and the rain, blew his papers away, etc. But he didn't complain over the air, which impressed me very favorably. I detested then, and I detest even more, announcers who complain about their lack of physical comfort, uh, the difficulties of their physical situations. Uh, they are there to broadcast an event to people. People care about the event. They don't care whether the announcer is warm or uh, hot or cold. So uh, that was uh, all there was to Scully. Well, then I'm sitting out at um, Stanford doing a football game, the last football game of the season uh, that fall, and I get word at halftime that... Uh, Ernie Harwell had elected to go over to the Polo Grounds and broadcast with Rush Hodges. So now we've got to have a third announcer at Brooklyn. And we don't need a real full-time announcer. I said, TV is just coming in. We just needed uh, somebody to come on and do uh, an inning here and there and this, that, and the other. And I'd always had sort of an idea in the back of my mind that it would be interesting to take a promising young man and train him right on the air. Wouldn't that be interesting? I thought it would be, add to the broadcast. Just say to the audience, uh, here's this neophyte, and Connie and I are going to take care of him. So I got back, and, uh, and I talked to Mr. Ricky about that principle. He said, that would be fine if you find the right young man. So I sent for Scully, and I asked him, would he be interested? Oh, my goodness, his eyes got uh, big as teacups. And uh, I said, well, you've got to go over and talk to Mr. Ricky. And in about an hour, Mr. Ricky called back, and he said, Walter. He always called me by my Christian name. He said, Walter, you found the right man. So Scully joined uh, Connie and me, and I will say this, for the years that Scully was with us through 53, that's the best three-man baseball team in history, Connie Desmond, Finn Scully, and the old redhead. And uh, what we did was, uh, anytime he made a mistake on the air, we corrected it, and the audience loved it. He didn't like it so much at times, but uh, he was a very quick learner, and he never made the same mistake twice. And uh, so... Yes, uh, Scully's my boy, and I'm very, uh, I'm very proud of him. I guess you might say that uh, he's my legacy uh, that, that's left to play by play baseball. Los Angeles, thank you. Washington, D.C. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, I just called to say uh, thank you for uh, 
your impact on the game. As a kid, I used to love listening to the Giants, listening to Russ Hodges and Lon Simmons do the play-by-play. I tried to explain to my wife and uh, folks who didn't have such good broadcasters in their area why listening to baseball on the radio is uh, so much superior to watching it on TV. You had talked about that a little bit earlier. Do you have any other thoughts on that? Well, let's say this. Uh, the viewer to a televised baseball game has to accept what the director in the control room puts on the screen. And uh, the broadcaster has to uh, synchronize his remarks with what the director is putting on the screen because uh, you can't be talking about one thing and there's a picture of something else. So the, the viewer is, is captive. He must use his eyes. He must look at the picture. And he must listen, and he must accept the game as it is given to him. He might want to see the left fielder do something, but he's not going to do it because the director wants to put the camera on the second baseman. Now, in radio, the trained radio play-by-play man is painting on a full canvas. He is free to describe that game to you in as much detail as he wishes as long as he stays in synchronization with the actual play-by-play. He can talk about the left field. He can talk about the second baseman. And you, the listener, you must participate. You're not looking at anything. You, you can close your eyes. Uh, but you must participate with your imagination. And as the radio announcer talks to you, it is up to you to see the ballpark. It is up to you to see the players. It is up to you to see the battle as the announcer describes it. Standing there, feet wide apart, slightly open stands, gripping the bat at the end of the handle. Ernie Lombardi, for example, keeping his index finger out always. is the only batter I ever saw doing it. You, the, uh, the listener, participate. And this is what people tell me, uh, avid uh, radio listeners, that even though they can see television, uh, they still want to hear on the radio. I tried very, very much to paint a picture and look around what I was interested in. When you're doing play-by-play, Bob, as you know, you do it with your eyes. What your eyes see, you talk. You're not conscious of, of the fact that you're talking. If, when you're doing ad-lib play-by-play, if you've got to stop and begin uh, being conscious of what you're saying, uh, you're going to break down. You, you can't do it. Stay with us. We'll be back for more. You're listening to NPR's Opening Day. NPR's Bob Edwards with his longtime broadcast partner, the legendary Red Barber, on another opening day that was postponed in 1990 and their special, NPR's opening day. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. It's a well-known but little-discussed phenomenon. Members of groups that are marginalized or excluded finding subversive, surprising ways to assert themselves through whatever scant opportunities are afforded them. We see it in the performing arts, where people forced into submissive roles often find ways to call attention to their plight. All that is a highfalutin way of introducing the teen comedy A Date with Judy. You'd hardly call it a revolutionary blow for women's equality. The title character, Judy Foster, is very much the winsome, bubble-headed, teenaged girl who measures success by the number of phone calls she gets from boys. But A Date with Judy was created and written by Aileen Leslie, along with the playwright Jerome Lawrence. And Ms. Leslie was a very successful writer whose work was far from unfeminist. Among other things, she co-wrote the low-budget Hollywood musical movie Rosie the Riveter. 
and you'll hear some very direct statements of feminist values, as well as the familiar voice of the young Richard Crenna as Judy's boyfriend Oogie, and a reference to the actor Cary Grant in this September 28, 1948 episode of the NBC sitcom A Date with Judy. Night and day, at home or away, always carry Tums. T-U-M-S. Tums, famous quick relief for acid indigestion, presents A Date with Judy, starring Louise Erickson as Judy and John Brown as father. Hello. Hello, Judy. This is Oogie. Oogie. I'm absolutely hysterical. You're home. Uh, did you have a good time at your grandmother's? Oh, Oogie, it was dreamy. Jimmy took me to the tennis matches, and Jerry took me sailing, and Freddie took me dancing. I had the most popular week since my girlhood. What did you do while I was away? Oh, nothing much. Oh, yeah, I took Tootsie Whiteman to the movies one night. Oogie and... Pringle, I might have known. Known what? The moment I turn my back, you're unfaithful to me. That's Judy, folks Judy Foster, the lovable teenage girl Who is close to all our hearts And now to the Fosters It's evening, shortly after dinner And Judy's mother and kid brother Randolph Sit staring at father He seems very unhappy He sighs he groans. Uh, he grunts. Hmm. He speaks. It's no use. I can't do it. I can't do it. Oh, Melvin, don't let it break your heart like that. It's all right, Father. I'm a failure. No, Melvin. A complete and utter failure. Stinky Edwards' father couldn't do it either. Well, I'm not going to give up. Oh, I wish I hadn't asked you to do it. Randolph, if a boy can't ask his own father to help him with his geometry, who can he ask? His teacher. I'll ask her first thing in the morning. No. I'll figure this out if it takes all night. Now, let's see. Given the measurements of two sides of a right-angled triangle... Randolph! Yes, Father? In the future, you will spend less time reading comic books and more time studying. But, Father... I shouldn't have to go through this. You should know without my helping you. Why, when I was a boy, I... Father, Mother! What is it, dear? Look what I found in the attic. Look, a painting. Isn't it lovely? Let me see. Yeah, it's pretty nice. Mm, not bad. Let me see it, dear. Oh, dear. What's the matter, Mother? Don't you like it? Yes, I like it very much. Matter of fact, now that I look at it more carefully, I think it's a masterpiece. A masterpiece? This picture of an apple? Oh, come now, Dora. Well, I ought to know. I painted it. What? No kidding Mother, did you really paint this beautiful picture? Did you really? Yes, I really But it's beautiful Really stunningly beautiful And just think All this time I thought of you only as a mother, cook, and housekeeper Now suddenly you're an artist, too Oh, you don't know me as well as you think you do, young lady You mean there's more? There might be (laughs) Don't tell me you do bird calls, too (laughs) No, I'm afraid not. But, Mother, you painted it with your own two hands. Better than that. I did it with one hand. But when? It must have been centuries ago. Oh, not exactly centuries, Judy. I was a young girl not too many years ago. Oh, I was crazy about painting. Yeah, I remember now. Somebody said you had a lot of talent. I think it was your mother. Oh, a lot of people (laughs) thought I had talent. 
I even had some lessons. And then what happened, Mother? Well, I sort of gave it up when a certain young man came along. Who? Your father. <laughs> father? Uh-huh. You gave up your great talent, your great career for father? Of course. Naturally. Father, how could you? Huh? How could I what? Marry mother. What? <laughs> I, 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 I wanted to. That's no excuse. It isn't? Well, I... <clears throat> well, you see, honey, it was because... It, what am I apologizing for? <laughs> well, you should apologize for what you did to mother. I didn't do anything to her. I just married her. Shame on you, father. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm really surprised at you, father. We might have had a genius in the family, a world-famous artist. You hadn't spoiled everything by marrying her. Young lady, did it ever occur to you that there wouldn't have been any family to have a genius in if I hadn't married her? Please, Father, don't quibble. Quibble? <laughs> I didn't know she was a genius. I didn't deliberately plan to deprive her of a career. Oh, I wouldn't be so sure about that, you men. You know what I think? I think that men are afraid of us as competition. So they marry and chain us to a broom to eliminate the competition. What? Why, I did nothing of the sort. In the first place, your mother is not chained to any broom. Of course not. It's a stove. Yes. No. <laughs> Young man... Well, I can tell you one thing. No man is going to do that to me. No, sir. I'm going to cherish and nurture my talent. No man is going to kill it by marrying me. What talent is that? Well, I don't know yet, but... Well, I've always felt that I must have some talent, and now that I know about Mother, I'm sure of it. After all, everybody always said that I took after Mother. But, honey... But father, I'm very fond of you, indeed. You know that. But I can't help it. Can't help what? I can't help feeling terribly sorry for poor, poor Mother. But I... Oh, for the love of heaven. <laughs> Boy, wasn't that a swell picture, Judy? Oh, yes, Dookie. Remember the part where the girl slapped the hero in the face and then he, he grabbed her by the hair and kissed her for about ten minutes? Uh-huh. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, good night, Dookie. Thanks for loving... You're not going in yet, are you? Well, I thought I'd get to bed... Oh, it's early. Let's sit on the, on the swing for a while, huh? I... Got a few things to say to you. Well, all right. What did you want to say, Uggy? Well, well, you see, I... Didn't you like the picture? Oh, yes. Especially the love scenes. It was beautiful when he told her that her eyes had a hundred stars in them. Women like it when men describe their various features, don't they? Uh-huh. <clears throat> Judy... Judy, you're beautiful tonight. Astonishingly beautiful. Why, Oogie? Your neck looks just like a swan's, almost. <laughs> I'm mad about you, Judy, mad. I think about you all the time, morning, noon, and night, and all through school. Oh, my dearest flower, you are like a petal, twisting my emotions, hither and yon. Oogie, stop talking that way. Stop it this minute. Holy smoke, what's the matter? I want you to stop it. Stop it? When my heart is pouring out every word Cary Grant said? I'm sorry, Yugi. But there's more. I didn't even get to the part where your skin is like cream. I can't listen and... to another syllable. Why not? Because I've given all that up. What? But before you always complained because I talked too much about spark plugs and axles. And now when I talk... I can't help it. But why? Why? 
Because I don't intend to be chained to a broom. Huh? I don't want to chain you to a broom. I just want to kiss you. Oh, I know you men. You're all the same. You start out by kissing us, and before we know it, you've got us spending our lives over a hot broom. What's all this about brooms? What's it got to do with my kissing you? Everything. Look at what happened to my mother. She married my father. It's not my fault she married your father. <laughs> if it hadn't been my father, it would have been someone else. You, for instance. Me? Well, how could I marry your mother? She's old enough to be my mother. Don't change the subject. How can I change the subject when I don't even know what the subject is? <laughs> the subject is what you men do to us women. You're afraid to compete with me. I am? About what? You know very well what about what. You know you're just trying to crush my talent. I've seen it happen to my mother, and I don't intend to let it happen to me. Did something happen to your mother? Yes. She married my father. Well, I admit that's a tough break, but why should that bother you now? Because I just found out about it. What? Did you think all along they weren't married? No. I mean, I just found out about my mother's talent. You don't know it, Ookie, but my mother was a great painter when she was a girl. Really? Yes, a great painter with a brilliant career ahead of her. And then she married my father and gave it up. Oh, that's too bad, but I still don't see what, what that's got to do with you and me. It's very simple, Oogie. You do the same thing to my talents. No, I wouldn't, Judy. I never do a thing like... What talent? <laughs> I don't know yet. It's still dormant. But one of these days it will emerge. Well, couldn't we kiss until it does? <laughs> no, Oogie. Because when it does, I want to be free to pursue it. I don't want any romantic entanglements to stand in its way. I must keep myself free. You mean it's all off between us? Oh, we can still be friends, Oogie. I still like you very much, but as for anything beyond that, I'm afraid that you will have to look upon me as one from another planet. But, Judy... I have spoken. <sighs> And then, Mother, I told Oogie that we could still be friends, but that I definitely intended avoiding the trap that you fell into. Well, Judy, I'd hardly call it a trap that I fell into. What do you mean? Well, I married a wonderful man whom I love very much, and I have two wonderful children. Of course, Father's and... a wonderful man, Mother, and we're wonderful children. But what about your art? Oh, well, Judy, I probably never would have amounted to much as an artist, dear. Mother, don't say that. You yourself said that everybody thought you were a genius. I didn't say genius, dear, just very talented. But even without it, Judy, I've been very happy. You just think you've been happy, Mother. But tell me the truth. Don't you ever miss painting? Oh, I don't know. But think I... of what you might have been, Mother. A world-renowned artist. The first great woman painter in history. Well, I... Selling pictures I... for fabulous amounts of money. Hung in all the famous art galleries of the world. Yes? Doing portraits of presidents and kings. Meeting all the great men of the day. Of course. Just think of it. You, the 20th century Rembrandt. Now that you mention it, Judy, maybe I did give up a lot when I married your father. And now, back to A Date with Judy. 
Mr. Foster, I hope you don't mind my coming down to your office. Well, of course not, Oogie. What's on your mind? Plenty, Mr. Foster, plenty. Well, sit down. Tell me about it. All right. Mr. Foster, do you know how Judy and I say goodnight to each other these days? No. We shake hands. <laughs> What's wrong with that? What's wrong with it? Mr. Foster, your daughter and I... Sit down, Ogie. Thank you. Mr. Foster, I have known your daughter for close on to nine years now. Discounting the time we were mere children, we have known each other as man and woman for four years. So? So it took me three of those four years to get her to the point where she and I used to say goodnight to each other by... Well, to be perfectly frank with you, Mr. Foster... We have not been shaking hands this past year. <laughs> see? And now what happens? What happens, I ask you? Well, I don't know. Uh, sit down, Ogie. Thank you. I'll tell you what happens. We're now back to shaking hands again. Is that so? Yes, that's so. And do you know why, Mr. Foster? No, I don't. Sit down, Ogie. Thanks. I'll tell you why, Mr. Foster. Because you married Mrs. Foster. What? Yes, sir, Mr. Foster You are responsible for my shaking hands with Judy What? What are you talking... Oh, I know You mean Judy's talk of my wrecking Mrs. Foster's great artistic talent Exactly, Mr. Foster Well, for goodness sake, Oogie You're not going to blame me for that, are you? Sit down uh, Thanks You can't hold that against me <laughs> Why, I had a perfect right to marry a girl if I loved her no, sir, Oogie. I refuse to accept the responsibility. I know, Mr. Foster, but I'm all upset. Well, the way it is now, I might as well be taking out Randolph for all the good Judy's doing me. Well, I'm very sorry, Oogie, but that's between Judy and yourself. Uh, sit down. Thanks. See, the funny thing is, this is all in Judy's mind. It is? Well, of course. Mrs. Foster is perfectly happy. She's never given her career a second thought. Well, why would she? She's had me. And the, uh, the children, of course. Yeah. Oogie, my boy, you've just got to learn how to handle women. Gosh, Mr. Foster, I wish I had your experience. Uh, nothing to it, Oogie. Any advice you'd give me would be cheerfully received. All right, Oogie. The first thing you've got to do is... Yes, Mr. Foster? Sit down. <laughs> I must tell you about something very funny that happened today. <laughs> Oogie came into the office to uh -huh. see me, and it, it seems he had a complaint against a... What's the matter, dear? You sound sort of funny. You feel all right? I'm fine. Oh, good. Well, it, it, it seems that Judy has been very unromantic toward him these days because of her feeling that I ruined your career by marrying you. Oh? <laughs> she told him she's avoiding all romantic entanglements, so she'll be free to pursue her talent when she discovers what it is. <laughs> don't you get it, dear? I get it. But I don't see what the joke is. What? Well, don't you see, Dora? She told me... I don't think it's very funny. But, Dora... If she feels she has a talent and wants to pursue it, well, who's to say which is the right course? What? Talent's a very precious thing, Melvin. Not everyone is fortunate enough to have one. But, Dora, And if dear, a person does uh, happen to have a talent, she feels that romance and marriage will stand in the way of her pursuing that talent, well, 
fame and fortune and success are not to be sneered at, you know. Well, but, Dora... Oh, not that I regret having given up my career. But when one thinks of past glories, one can't help but feel a certain emptiness. <laughs> Dora! Just think. I might have hung in all the famous art galleries of the world. <laughs> oh, well. Oh, no. Father, what's the matter? These past few days you've been walking around like a man without oh, a... Oh, I don't know, son. You go along thinking everything is hunky-dory... Suddenly, something you did 20 years ago comes back and hits you right smack in the face. Mm, the talent business, huh? Yeah. Well, uh, what are you going to do about it? What can I do about it? Except go around looking apologetic. If a person had an idea, would you consider an increase in his allowance? Randolph, have you got... Gladly! A dollar? I might. A dollar and a quarter? I'd rather go around looking apologetic. Then shall we say a dollar? Shall we say 75 cents? Shake. Shake. What do we do? Well, first we call Oogie. Uh-huh. Then we'll work it out so that every night... Poor mother. Yes, it's just a shame. Well, never mind, children. It's too late for me. I have so many responsibilities and so little time. But you, Judy... Have you felt any inner drives yet, dear? I think so, Mother. Poetry. Oh, Judy, how wonderful. It happened yesterday. I was walking with Mitzi, and suddenly I saw a bird. Immediately, a phrase came into my mind. Oh, would that I were a winged creature with wings spread wide. Yes. Yes? That's all. <laughs> but I knew at that moment that poetry was to be my life. It's a beautiful line, dear. Thank you, Mother. Now stick to it, dear. Don't let anything stand in your way. I won't, Mother. Hello, everybody. Hi, Father. Good evening, Melvin. Good evening, Father. What's in the package? You'll see in just a moment. But uh, first, there's something I want to say. Dora, I've been thinking things over. I mean, about your artistic talent and so on. And I want you to know that I think you're right. Melvin. Why, Father? I, I spoiled your chances by marrying you and tying you down to a house and shelter. <sighs> Now, I want to give you that chance I stole from you. In this package, you will find an easel, a set of paints, and canvas. Now, Dora, paint. Oh. <laughs> yes. Mother, father has given your career back to you. Oh, I'm so excited. I don't know what to paint first. Now, how about my bicycle? They can show you Randolph, how can you be so inartistic? I shall start composing. If there could but be silence. Oh, I'm very sorry. I won't say another word. Mother, do you know what we're going to do? We are going to devote every minute of our spare time to our individual careers. It is unfortunate that I have to go to school in the daytime. But we'll still have the eventide. Of course. We'll work at night. Every night. We won't go any place or see anyone. We'll just work. Side by side to the dawn. Yes, dear. Melvin, I hope you won't mind being left alone in the evenings. I have so many years to make up for. I understand, dear. Well, I'd better go upstairs and change my clothes. Change your clothes? What are you going to do? Don't you remember? Tonight's the Emerson's party. 
Oh. It's a shame that you're going to have to miss it, dear. But then, you'll have the dawn. Of course. Oh, that reminds me. I'd better call Oogie and tell him not to pick me up. We're supposed to go to Mitzi's party. Poor darling, he'll be so disappointed. Hello? Hello, Judy, this is Oogie. Oh, hello, Oogie. I was just going to call you. Uh, about the party tonight, I can't possibly go. You see, I'm in the middle of a poem, and I must... Oh, think... that's the reason I called, Judy. I've been thinking about what you said, and I've come to the conclusion that you're right. Really? Uh-huh. You should devote all your time to your talent, especially now that you know what it is. So I called to tell you that I already asked Tootsie Whiteman to go to the party with me. Oh. Well, I guess I won't be calling you anymore. Oh, that's so understanding of you, Oogie. Uh, a person simply cannot create when a phone keeps ringing. Of course not. I'd really like to have it taken out. Yeah, artists shouldn't have phones. Well, goodbye. Goodbye, Oogie. Call me tomorrow. Randolph, you sure bowled a good game. No, it's nothing. Well, I wasn't so bad, Oogie. Oh, no, Mr. Foster, no indeed. Hmm. Sounds awful quiet in here. Well, painting pictures and writing poetry are very quiet occupations. Let's see what they've done. Hmm? Well, uh, Judy fell asleep on the couch. And Mrs. Foster in the chair. <laughs> they couldn't have been very inspired. Uh, let's see what they created tonight. Yeah, 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 yeah. His mother's canvas. Blank. Oh, not quite. Notice her signature in the lower right-hand corner. <laughs> not a bad night's work. <laughs> hey, here's the paper Judy was writing. Well, come on out in the hall. Let's see. Oh, would that I were a winged creature with wings spread wide. Yeah? Yes. That's all. <laughs> Except that she wrote it one, two, three, eleven times. And the eleventh time, she wrote it backwards. Widespread wings with creature winged, a were I that would owe. <laughs> Anything else? Oh, yeah. Judy Foster, Poet Laureate of America. Uh, Judy Foster, Poetess Laureate of America. Judy Foster, Poet Laureatus of America. Judy Foster, Poetess Laureatus of Americas. <laughs> well, she certainly covered that subject. <laughs> well, good night, boys. If we're going out every night while genius is at work, I'd better get some sleep. I sure hope you can stand the pace, Father. <laughs> Well, fellas, what'll it be tonight? How about the movie at the Bijou? I hear it's wonderful. Good idea. Let's go. So long, girls. So long. A better luck tonight, Mother. Same to you, Judy. I hope you get that second line tonight. Thank you. Good night. Night. Good night. Good night. Well, I better get to work. Let's see, where was I? Oh, would that I were a winged... Mother, where are you going? Melvin, wait! Wait for me! What's the matter, Dora? What's the trouble? I want to see that movie! Mother, how could you? No. No, Dora, I couldn't let you do it. What about your painting? And, and, and career? I spoiled it for you once. I couldn't do it again. Melvin, you've been out every single night this week having fun while I've been painting apples. I want to have some fun, too. <laughs> well, if you're sure you won't feel that... Father, you, you mustn't tempt Mother like that. What about her talent? Well, I'll tell you, Judy. Just because your mother has talent, there's no reason why she can't live a normal life. 
Matter of fact, talent can usually be better expressed when a person is leading a normal life. But, Father... Anyway, Judy, one genius in the family is enough, dear, and you can be it. Well, I certainly intend to. I certainly do. My talent is much too important to just throw it away simply because I miss a good time. The only thing is... Yeah? I've decided not to be a poet. No. Judy! No kidding. It's no use trying to dissuade me. I made up my mind. Poets never become famous until after they're dead, and I can't wait that long. <laughs> I see what you mean. I have decided to switch careers. I shall continue to write, but from now on... Yeah? I'm going to write for the movies. The movies? Yes. So, purely in the interest of my career, I shall be glad to accept your kind invitation to the Bijou tonight. Come on, Judy. <laughs> Dora, don't let anyone ever tell you we haven't got one genius in the family. <laughs> <laughs> Well, good night, Judy. But, Oogie, it isn't late. Don't you want to sit on the swing and talk? No, I gotta get up early and work on my car. You see, the spark plugs. Oh, are... I deserve this. Huh? I treated you shamefully. I didn't appreciate you when you were romantic. Now, Judy. You'll probably never tell me that you're mad about me again. Sure, I will, Judy. It's just that my spark plugs. You'll never say that my eyes have stars in them. Judy, you don't understand. When a fella's got dirty spark plugs. <laughs> I do understand, Oogie. <laughs> I just hope that someday you will find it in your heart to forgive me. Good night. Judy, wait a minute. Yes, Oogie? I, I'm mad about you. How, Oogie? And not only that, I like you, too. <laughs> oh, Oogie, that's the most beautiful thing you've ever said to me. What else? What else? Yes, go on. I got a leaky carburetor, too. <laughs> Judy is written by Elaine Leslie and stars Louise Erickson as Judy and John Brown as father with Dick Davis as Randolph and Myra Marsh as mother. Dick Crenna played Oogie. Music was composed and conducted by Hal Bourne. The program was produced and directed by Helen Mack. This is Ken Niles inviting you to be with us again next Tuesday at this time to keep your date with Judy. And remember, night and day at home or away, always carry tons. T-U-M-S. A surprising entry, we think, in our Women's History Month observance, A Date with Judy from NBC in the early fall of 1948 and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. Here on the big broadcast, we often remark on how well the best old radio shows used sound to tell their stories. Gunsmoke was especially adept at it, and in tonight's episode, called The Barton Boy, the sound of the human voice is the pivot point of the whole plot. The story was broadcast on October 1st, 1955, as part of the CBS series Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the Territory on West, 
There's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. The transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful. And a little lonely. A lonesome town, Dodge City. A handful of sunburned buildings half lost in the empty prairie. With a few scrawny cottonwood trees along the plaza. And the river and the red clay bluffs to the south. A frontier town like all the others. Except for one difference. We're on the railroad. So about once a day, when the train starts whistling off in the east, the folks in Dodge listen and remember that they're part of a bigger world outside. A different world beyond the plains. Well, just looky there, Mr. Dillon. A brand new record this time, pulling four coaches in a baggage car. Yeah, they keep getting longer all the time, don't they, Tessa? Why, in eight or ten years, I bet you'll see six and seven coach trains rolling into Dodge. Yeah, it'd be more surprising if they'd ever get them in on time. Yeah, come on. Let's uh, pick up that strong box and take it over to the bank, huh? Look at there. Dudes with a dozen. Oohing and awing around. <laughs> Just look at them. Dressed fit to kill. Now, they'll get over it. Some of them, at least. The rest of them will go back east. Well, there's one I sure hope don't. My. Huh? What? If you want to meet her, why don't you drop into Long Branch Saloon? She's going to work there? Well, do you know her, Mr. Dillon? No, but she's got that look. Oh, my. Hey, Ed. It's Matt Dillon. Open up. You know, this is what I ought to been, Mr. Dillon. A baggage clerk. Oh, just one run a week to Kansas City and back and collect your pay. Yeah, that sounds pretty easy, doesn't it? Hey, Ed! He's probably asleep. Nothing else to do the whole trip. Yeah, I suppose so. Let me get up there, Chester. Maybe I can see through the window. See anything? No, not much. This glass is so dirty that... Chester! What's the matter? Go find Doc. I gotta break the latch on this door and I'll hurry! <laughs> Chester. Bear down just a little harder. It's starting to give. All right. Watch your hand, Chester. I'm watching. Ah, ah, yeah. All right. That's it. Let's get her open. It's. Oh. That's it. Oh. 
There he is. Laying over there in the corner. Yeah. Ed. I guess he won't be answering, Matt. Two bullets right over the heart. Either one of them would have done the job. Yeah, but the baggage car was locked. Whoever done it couldn't have got out. Probably stepped out on the ledge there, slid the door shut behind him. The latch catches by itself. Oh, Matt. Yeah, what is it, Doc? There's another one down at the end of the car. What? Just a kid. He's not over ten years old. And he's been shot. Same as the baggage clerk. Why, that's Ed's own boy, Billy Barton. Ed must have took him along on this one. Is he hurt bad, Doc? No, just grazed his head the way it looks. He'll pull through all right. Good. Look, I want to talk to the conductor and the train crew. You stay here and give Doc a hand, will you, Chester? Yes, sir, I will. Oh, uh, Chester, by the way... That soft job is open now if you want it. Matt? Ah, hello, Kitty. What happened, Matt? Somebody said the train was held up. Yeah, somebody got into the baggage car and killed Ed Barton. Shot his son. Took the strong box around $20,000, I guess. And they got away? Yeah, it looks that way. Train crew figures it must have happened near the Walnut Creek crossing. Whoever did it dropped off when the train slowed down for the trestle there. What about the boy, Billy? Oh, he'll live. Doc's patching him up now. Poor little kid. Ed was all he had, and now he's left with nobody. Yeah, it's too bad. It's going to be rough on Laura, too. She and Ed were planning to be married. That's what I heard. So I figured I'd better stop by and tell her. Well, maybe she can go back to Taggart, if he's still around. She left him when she and Ed started going together. She's not one to be without a man. Marshal. Make it gentle, Matt. There's nothing gentle about death, Kitty. Marshal, nobody will tell me anything. What's happened? Ed's been hurt, hasn't he? Yes, I'm afraid he has, Laura. I knew that's what it was. Is it bad? Couldn't be any worse. No. No. I'm sorry, Lauren. He's dead. No, Marshal. No. Oh. Kitty, will you take care of her? I gotta go see if the boy's able to talk oh, yet. Don't worry about her, Matt. She'll be all right. Just get whoever did it, that's all. Don't let him get away with it. Well, I'm hoping the boy can help me in some way. As it is, I got nothing to go on. Nothing at all. Son, I, I got you all fixed up. Oh, now you're going to be all right. There's nothing to worry about. Well, I bet you've been hurt worse just from bumping your head. Oh, it ain't so hurting, Doc. I know, son. Make it sure as you can, Matt. He's pretty broke up about it. Yeah, all right, Doc. Well, Billy, if you uh, feel like talking, 
I'm all right. What happened, Billy? Well, we was maybe three or four miles the other side of Walnut Creek, and somebody knocked on the door of the car. The one that goes back toward the coaches. When Dad opened it, this man came in with a gun. Anybody you know? You ever seen him before? No, he, he had a handkerchief over his face. Uh, well, was there anything special about him? His shape, size, or clothes, maybe? Uh, no, sir. Nothing I can remember. I don't know who he was, Marshal, but I know I hate him. That, that's enough. Billy, what happened then when he came in with the gun? Well, he pointed at my dad and said he'd shoot him if he made a move. Dad grabbed for the shotgun on the wall. The man fired two times and Dad fell. I started toward him and the man fired again. That's all I remember. Ah, I see. You don't figure that you'd know this man if you saw him again, huh? No, I, I don't guess so. Not unless he talked. What? I'd know his voice, all right. Even if he's trying to fool me. Well, well why? Well, what was special about it? Well, I don't know exactly. It was, was kind of weak-like or something. It's hard to explain. But I'll know it. Any time I hear it. Well, we'll try to make sure you do hear it, Billy. Hey, you take it easy now. You get that head all healed up. Huh? I will. Okay. Chester. Yes, sir. Uh, fix up one of the cells over at the jail, huh? I want to get the kid moved over there right away. Oh, why so, Mr. Gilman? But now the whole town knows Billy's alive. He's the only witness who can identify the killer. And the killer knows it. Barton moved into a cell at the Dodge City Jail. And Chester stayed with him most of the time to keep him company and to keep him alive. Meanwhile, I combed the town from one end to the other, brought in every gunslinger, saddle bum, and drifter I thought might fit the bill. Get your hands up, stand still, don't make a move. Well, what do you think, Billy? Does that sound anything like him? No, sir. I mean, maybe it's kind of like him. But he's not the one, Marshal. Uh, now, all right, Chester, take him out. Yes, sir. Come on, Oh, and uh, bring in Hawkley, will you? All right, Mr. Dillon. See, Billy, it takes time, but uh, we'll get him sooner or later. This is a preposterous outrage, Marshal. This is an unmitigated insult. Men of my character and integrity to be dragged in here... You're a sniveling card sharp, and you've been dragged into half the jails west of the Mississippi. Marshal, I beg your pardon. Just keep talking, Pegasus. Well, it's true. Of course, one or two occasions in the past I was accused <clears throat> falsely, basely, unjustly, with deliberate malice. Uh, accused of certain more or less uh, criminal activities... 
<clears throat> which it goes without saying I was entirely innocent and blameless. It ain't him, Marshal. Regardless. His voice ain't nothing like it. Now, that's too bad. I've been trying to nail him on something for the last year. All right, Pegasus. You can shut up now. I've only begun I said that's enough. Throw him out, Chester, then bring in the next one. How much longer am I going to have to stay here, Chester? Well, that's kindly hard to say, Billy. Oh, it must have been over a week already. Oh, yeah, something like that, I guess. Uh, how about a nice game of checkers? Oh, I'm tired of checkers. Well, casino, then. That's a good, interesting game. I don't want I want to get out of here. Well, now, we got to give that head of yours time to heal up proper. Oh, that ain't the reason. I know why you and the marshal are keeping me here. Well, it's just because we're... Yeah, you think that man on the train's going to try and kill me. That's how come you're doing it. Now, whatever could give you an idea like that? You ain't going to find him. He wouldn't stay around here. He's halfway to St. Louis by now. Well, now, Billy, you just can never tell why that fellow might be... Sit tight, Billy. Yes, sir. Who is it? Who's there? Is that you, Chester? Oh... Miss Laura, hey, just a minute. Sorry to keep you waiting, Miss Laura. That's all right. Well, how are you, Billy? All right, I guess. Well, do you suppose I could interest a couple of hungry men in some home-cooked food? Oh, yes, ma'am, you sure could. Here, let me take that basket. Oh, look at that. Why, that's better than last year's church social. How's your head, Billy? All right, I guess. Well, I've got something here that's going to make it better in a hurry. Oh, what's that? Slice of rum cake. One of the girls I work with had it sent all the way from New York, and I talked her out of a piece of it, just for you. Well, now, what do you say for that, Billy? Thank you. Hi, you're welcome, Billy. You'd better sit right down here and help us eat up some of this good food, Miss Laura. (laughs) Well, I'd like to, Chester, but I got a change to get on over to the Long Branch. My work day's just starting, you know. (laughs) Well, we we sure do appreciate this. Well, I'll see you later. Uh, Billy, I, I know it's sort of understood that you're going to go live with Miss Austy over at the boarding house when you leave here, but, well, I've, I've always wanted a little boy, one all my own, and I'd, well, I'd kind of like for it to be you. Well? Well, you don't have to answer now, but think it over, Billy. Yes, ma'am. Well, good night, you two. Good night, Miss Laura. Well, now. What do you think about that? It's all right, I guess. All right? Well, I think it's just fine. Uh, Billy, let me get a knife from under my mattress, and we'll try out these vittles of yours. Have a drink with me, Matt? No, not right now, thanks, Kitty. Hmm. Deb Barton's murder still bothering you, huh? 
Yeah, I guess so. Well, you can't win every hand. No, but this one's different, Kitty. Ed was killed in cold blood. And Billy, a kid of that age, shot down and left to die. Somebody's going to pay for it, Kitty. You could be following a cold trail, Matt. Might have been a drifter, someone who never even came near Dodge City. No, I don't think so. For one reason. Only three people were ever told when those money shipments were being made. Me and Ed and Mr. Botkin over at the bank. And that killer knew. Knew exactly which trip to hit. Now, it was somebody from this town. Had to be. Well, it sounds that way, all right. The killer's here in Dodge and the money's here. And sooner or later, I'm going to find them both. Well, I hope it's sooner, Matt. You're beginning to look like a scarecrow. I'll make out. How's uh, Laura getting along? Oh, not too bad, I guess. She's kept it to herself, mostly. Hasn't talked about it. Might be better if she wouldn't. I suppose. I've heard that she started hanging around with Taggart again, though. Taggart? Uh-huh. I thought he went to Kansas City. Well, he did a couple of weeks ago. I guess he's back again. Anyway, one of the bartenders claims he saw him night before last over on the south side, and of course that's where Laura lives. Taggart, huh? She's even started talking like him again the last few days. She's a regular parrot. You know that voice of his? Soft and sort of husky-like. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Thanks, Kitty. For what? I'll see you later. Chester, come on, open up. All right, I'm, I'm coming, Mr. Dillon. Well, it sure is good to see a face from the outside world, Mr. Dillon. Is Billy all right? Well, sure he is. Why wouldn't he be all... What's happening? I think I know who did it. Well, how are you making out, Billy? How much longer have I got to stay here, Marshal? Well, I think it's just about over now. Uh, say, where'd all this come from? Uh, Miss Laura fetched it. Oh, we had ourselves a real feed. At least I did. Billy wasn't very hungry. He didn't even eat the special slice of rum cake she brought for him. Special, huh? Mm-hmm. What'd you do with it, Billy? Oh, I'm sorry, Marshal, but I didn't want it. I give it to that old hound dog that's been hanging around. Oh, I see. Uh, Chester, I wonder if you'd step out back here for a second. All right, Mr. Young. We'll be right back, Billy. Yes, sir. Chester, go find Clint Murphy and have him come back here and keep an eye on Billy for the next hour. Well, ain't no need for Clint. I'll be here, Mr. No, you won't. We're going to pick up a killer. I can't take any more chances. What do you mean? The dog. The one Billy gave his special kick to. Flying out there by the edge of the street. It's been poisoned. many times you've done it before, the same thing always happens. Every time you start out to bring in a killer. 
You know what's waiting for you. When the muscles under your belt knot up and your heart starts to pound. But after a few minutes, you go cold and loosen up. Then it's all right. You stop thinking then. Stop feeling anything. Let us go out and do the job. Nice night. Kindly peaceful life. Yeah. I swear I don't know, Mr. Dillon. It just makes you wonder. What is it gets into people? I got no answer for you, Chester. That's her place there, the second one down. Yeah, I know. You think he'll be there? I think he'll be there. All right, stay clear, Chester. Watch yourself. Yes, sir, I will. She was just using Ed Barton so she could find out the date of the shipment. That's right. I can't understand. Get out, Chester. There by the porch, Mr. Dillon. Come on. Over here by the back of the tree. He ain't got much cover there. We must have caught him unexpected. He won't stay there. He'll make a run for it. We'll wait him out. I don't know, Mr. Dillon. It don't look like he's... There he goes. Drop the gun, Taggart. You're under arrest. Your last chance, Taggart! All right, come on, Chester. That's the end of it. No. Not yet. What? You wait here. Yes, sir. You killed him, didn't you, Marshal? Put that gun down, Laura. The only man in this world I ever cared about. And you killed him. You'd never stop me with one shot and you know it. I'd still have time to draw and kill you. You're not the man to draw a gun on a woman. I never have before. But a little while ago, I saw a dog lying dead in the street. And if you'd have had your way, it'd have been a kid instead. So you better put that gun down and take your chances with a jury. Because you got no chance with me. <laughs> You're under arrest. That kid. That's what beat us. The minute I heard he was alive, I knew it was starting to go wrong. It started long before that, Laura. What do you mean? When? The day you were born. 
Gunsmoke, produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. The special music for Gunsmoke was composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Ray Kemper. Featured in the cast were Virginia Christine, Richard Beals, and Lawrence Dobkin. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. The Barton Boy, an episode of Gunsmoke from the fall of 1955 and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer, and Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are our audio engineers. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org. Our website is thebigbroadcast.org. You'll find some engaging extras on our Facebook page, The Big Broadcast. And here's a reminder, we're now on Instagram, bigbroadcastwamu. When you think of the famous locked room mystery genre, you think of classic detective fiction. And writers like Edgar Allan Poe, Arthur Conan Doyle, and Agatha Christie. Not to mention John Dixon Carr. Okay, we mentioned him. But there have been some real-life locked room mysteries. And on Dragnet tonight, it's up to Sergeants Friday and Romero to solve one of them. The case was broadcast on December 15, 1949, over NBC as part of the series Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet. The documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, January 9th. It was stormy in Los Angeles. We were working a day watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Ben Romero, and my name's Friday. I was on the way to work, and it was 6.45 a.m. when I got to the steps of the city hall, the main street entrance. Hey, Joe, wait up. Morning, Ben. When did they call you? 5 a.m. Donahoe called you. Yeah, miserable out, isn't it? It's pretty wet. Feet are soaking wet. See the transfer there? Yeah. New chief of detective? Ooh, wait a minute, I want to get some gum. Back experiment. Well, I heard about the new chief. Thad Brown. Good man. Peace gum? Mm, thanks. Well, I wish they'd make up the minds about our shift. Work days, they call you back night. Work nights, they call you back days. Once you put in for a desk job. We never have to call you back. You're here all the time. Well, you just hired the police. Here we are. Thanks, Egan. Gentlemen, good night. Is this a great way to start off as your new chief? Call you back on a rotten morning like this? I'm glad you got the job, Thad. Yeah, congratulations, Chief. It's hard to follow a man like Ed Backstrand. Gonna need your help. You got it. Here's why I called you back. Laura Barclay. Mm-hmm. the dead body report nightclub entertainer. Night he found the body an hour ago. 
Who's covering? Burton and Anderson. They're out there now. Strangled, huh? Well, the lamp cord. Still trying to figure out how the guy got in the house. Doors and windows all locked. Yeah. The tech. That the motive? For now, yeah. I just came from there. I think there's more. Any reason? Her room wasn't prowled. Yeah? Well, just a hunch. Play it for me. Ben and I left Thad Brown's office, picked up Lieutenant Lee Jones at the crime lab, and drove to the West Adams District, number 16 Imperial Place, where the body of Laura Barkley had been found. It was an ornate frame structure done in Victorian style, at least 30 to 40 years old. Number 16 was on the ground floor. We went in. A narrow hallway led to the bedroom in the rear of the house. Two gas jet fixtures, which had been converted to electricity, were the only illumination. This place has seen better day. Anybody else coming out, Lee? Yeah, I see flash bulbs down there. They must be here already. Lieutenant, Friday, down this way. Hi, Burton. Hi. Photographer's covering the body position. Peterson's dusting for French. Fred, shoot a couple of overheads. Don't make them all angle shots. Get up high, then move in close. Yeah, Chief was right. Room's in pretty good order. Did you talk to anybody, Burton? Landlady. Lives upstairs. Only two people living in the building. Mm-hmm. Did she tell you anything? Said the Barkley girl paid her rent on time. Good tenant. Plays the organ at the Blue Fox. Cocktail line. Hmm. Any idea how the murderer got in here? Not yet. Every door and window in the place is locked. Anything else? That's it so far. We'll give you 15.7 on what we got. Okay. Right. You and Anderson have another detail? Yeah, working on that Westwood thing. Two uniform men outside if you want anything. Right, thanks. Looks like a tough one, Joe. Whoever did it must have come in through the keyhole. I'll see you later. So long, Lloyd. Andy. Peterson's nothing for Prince. Nothing yet. Only piece of physical evidence so far, the lamp cord she was strangled with. I'll run it through downtown. Not a sign of a struggle. Maybe she wanted to die. Check the bathroom, will you, Ben? Yeah. I'll look around the kitchen. Hey, Pete, have you dusted the lamps yet? Not yet. Not this one. I'm going to keep it. Yeah, ben, come here a minute, will you? Ben! Yeah? Come in the kitchen, will you? You got a pencil? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, here you are. Okay. Take a look at this garbage chute here. Mm, let me see. Mm. About eight feet to the ground. Yeah, big enough for a man to get through. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no problem. Lee! I'll be right there. It could be the answer, Joe. Well, he either got in this way or he was in the house when she came home. What do you got? Garbage chute here. What do you think? Could be. Let me grab a kit. Let's see. Aluminum powder. There it is. No. Side of the lid. Looked pretty clean. Must have just been scrubbed. Abrasions here. Got a pencil? Yeah, uh, yeah, okay. Hold it up there, will you? Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, there we go. Large prints. Unusually large. Big hands. Can I look inside the shoot a minute, Lee? Go ahead. Watch that lid. Yeah, I will. like it's blocked off upstairs. This thing hasn't been used for garbage for some time. Most of them were condemned a few years back. I'll get Fred to shoot these. Let's go in the living room. 
That desk been dusted, Lee? Yeah, it's clean. Go ahead. Mm, take a look, Joe. Yeah. Photographs. Hmm. Hundreds of them. All men. Yeah, all different. Lee Jones and the crime lab crew finished up and went back to Central Division. Two uniformed officers remained on duty at the scene of the crimes. Thad Brown had men sent out to canvas the neighborhood. Ben and I went upstairs and talked with the landlady, a Mrs. Emma Smith. Yes? Police officers. You Miss Smith? Yes. You're not the same officers I talked with before. No, ma'am. I wonder if we could ask you a few questions. I told the other officers everything I knew. We have to double-check, Miss Smith. Who was the girl who lived in the apartment below, number 16? Laura Barclay. Is that the name she used? The mail she received, was it addressed that way? Yes, it was. She was a very good tenant, Laura. No trouble with her at all. When did she move here? Oh, about four or five years ago. I have the rent receipts. I always save receipts. Did she always live by herself? Oh, yes. That apartment rents to one person only. Did she have many visitors, friends dropping in? None that I ever saw. Pretty much to herself, Laura. The men came yesterday and took away. What's that, ma'am? The organ. Electric one. Laura rented it from a big downtown firm. Used to practice all the time. My, it was beautiful. Yeah. In the gloaming. She used to play that for me. Mrs. Smith. When did the men come and take the organ away? Yesterday, in the afternoon, about 4.30. Was Miss Barclay at home when they came? No, she wasn't. She left me a note to let them in, so I let them in. I never allow anyone in the apartment without a note. You know the name of the company where she rented the organ? The Braziers, it was called, down on South Spring. Well, didn't you think it was unusual that Miss Barclay didn't have any friends? Now, officer, I didn't say Laura didn't have any friends. What I said was that she didn't have any friends who came to see her here. She moved here from a hotel for women. That's the reference she gave me. I see. I wonder if you could give us the address of that hotel, please. I'll write it down for you. Thank you. Uh, Miss Smith, did you hear any unusual sounds in Miss Barclay's flat last night? Anything out of the ordinary? If I had, I would have called the police and we'd have saved a girl's life. Well, thank you very much, Miss Smith. Here's a call. If there's anything you think of after we've gone, don't hesitate to call us. Thank you, I will. I hope you get the dirty men who killed Laura. We didn't say it was a man, Miss Smith. Well, isn't it always a man? Before we left Mrs. Emma Smith, we asked her about the garbage chute. She said it had not been in use for the last four years. We showed her the stack of photos. She could identify none of them. We drove back to Central Division. We checked Brazier's music store. The two men who moved the organ were checked out and cleared. We went to the Wynn Hotel for young ladies. They could tell us nothing. Laura Barclay's references were all good. We went back to the office and met with Chief of Detectives Thad Brown. You think he got in through the garbage chute? That's the way it looks, Chief. Went all over the apartment. If there's another way, we haven't found it. All right, you know how he got in. Who is he? We got out an APB on his M.O., latent fingerprints, and making a run on those prints we found. You got an idea about these pictures here. Most of them theatrical still, show people. Hmm. Frank Latour and his canine circus. 
To Laura, all my love, Frank. Say what you do. Here's a guy I checked with this morning. Bernard Carrion. Theatrical booking agent, huh? Yeah, Barney's office is down in the Orpheum building, 8th and Hill. He booked her into the Blue Fox. See what he can tell you. All right. I'll grab the picture pen, huh? Oh, yeah. Well, you got more than you started with. Yeah, those fingerprints. We get a make on them, we'll be close to the guy. So was the Barclay girl. But he got away. I wonder if we could see Mr. Carubian. Who's calling, please? Sergeant Romero and Sergeant Friday, police officers. One moment, please. Yeah, please. Two police officers to see you, Mr. Carubian. Sergeant Friday and Sergeant Romero, is that right? Yes, ma'am. Send them in. Go right in. Thank you. Say that you booked Laura Barkley. Yeah, that's right. I spoke with a got his name right here. Chief Sadman? Yeah, that's right. He asked me about Laura. Too bad about that. Any clues? We're working on it, Mr. Carubian. What makes a person pull a stunt like that? Laura didn't have no enemies. She had one. Well, I don't know much about her except I've been booking her for about four years. Good organist. Pretty fair voice, too. Got some pictures here. I wonder if you'd take a look at them. Yeah, sure. Quite a stack. Yeah, old Frankie Latour and the dogs. Great act. I book him. Ricky Rogan, King of the Tap. Gus Sorinoco and that singing seal of his. Yeah, yeah, I know all these people. I book them all. Did Laura Barkley work with all these people? One time or another, yeah. During the war, USO camp shows, you know. Do you know whether she was close to any of them? Well, come to think of it, she was. That Frankie Latour, crazy about them dogs of his. No, I mean the men themselves. Anybody that she seemed particularly interested in? Never heard her mention anybody. Pretty girl. Did you know her very well, Miss Groovy? Only when she came in and out of town on an engagement. I'm a married man. Well, then you don't think there's anything to these pictures here of hers, huh? Well, I wouldn't say so. When you're on the road, you always collect photos of the people you work with. Souvenirs. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Carubian. Here's our card. You betcha. Yeah, I sure hope you catch the guy. wonder why you picked on Laura. Sometimes they don't have a reason. When we left Bernard Carubian's office, we checked by the Blue Fox Cocktail Lounge. It was still early. The sign said open 5 p.m. It was 3.15. We went to the morgue in the basement of the Hall of Justice and looked at the coroner's report. The autopsy report stated that the cause of death for Laura Barclay was strangulation. We went to the second floor of the old city jail building, the crime lab. Nothing on the lamp cord. Standard UL 110 line. Bad anywhere. No prints. How about the chute, Lee? Went back there and rechecked. You were right. The guy got in through the garbage chute. Found more of the same prints along with some cloth impressions in the dust. Tell you anything? The guy was wearing some kind of tweed, Donegal, 15 to the inch. How about the size of a man, Lee? How big could he be to clear that chute? It had a 20-inch diameter. Almost any man could squeeze through that. Check the ground level of the chute. Cement. No footprints. Mm. You don't have too much for it. I got one thing for you. What's that? I think I found your motive. And not the one listed on the report. Yeah. Here are the blow-ups of the body. It's 36 by 54 here. Hold that in, will you, man? No, I don't. 
Look through this magnifying glass here. The right hand. Yeah. See where I'm pointing? Uh, ring finger, yeah. Look like ring marks. That's right. Pretty wide. Must have been good sized rings. Oh, I might still be in that room. I called Thad Brown. He had the room rechecked. No sign. And you think we got a burglary motive on our hands? That's my guess. Thad had the boys check with the landlady. She didn't know anything about any rings the Barclay girl might have had. Yeah. That doesn't help. I think I got something else. Here. Oh, library book. Her? Her cards in one of the pockets inside checked out from the L.A. Public Library main branch. Mm-hmm. I think these might be a lead on the missing rings. A librarian sees a person's hands every time they check out a book. That makes sense, Lee. We'll play it that way. What department were the books checked out of? The music room. Well, that's it. I think you've got your move now and a good set of prints. You're close. Thanks a lot, Lee. Well, let's go to the library, Ben. I'll get it. Crime lab. No, this is Friday. Oh. Thanks, Frank. Well, all we got's a motive. How do you mean? No make on those fingerprints. Nothing. You are listening to Dragnet for the solution to an actual case from official police files. p.m. Tuesday, January 9th. Heavy rain. Laura Barclay's murderer was still a free man. Ben and I were sure that whoever left their fingerprints on the inside of that garbage chute was the same man who murdered the Barclay girl. He had no previous record. His first crime, as far as we knew, was a killing, and the odds were all in his favor. The fingerprints gave us nothing. All we had left to lead us to the killer were three library books and a stack of old theatrical photos. The solution of most crimes for the working detective is method and persistence. When you have clues, you work with them. When you don't, you work your way to a logical conclusion as best you can. We went to the Los Angeles Public Library, the main branch. The librarians in the music room handle thousands of readers every week. None of them remembered Laura Barclay. We drove over to the Blue Fox Cocktail Lounge. We interviewed the manager, and he knew nothing of her personal life. We talked to Harry Schumann, the organist who had taken Laura Barclay's place. What would you like to hear, fellas? Police officers. like to talk to you, man. About Laura, huh? Yeah, that's right. All right, if I keep on playing, manager wants full 15-minute sets. Oh, yeah, go ahead. That's all right. What can I tell you? How long have you known Miss Barclay? Oh, four or five years. It's a terrible thing. You got to get to whoever did it. Yeah, we're going to try. Can you think of anybody that might have killed her? I know you ask that question of everybody. I don't know. Does anybody ever know for sure? Sometimes. Well, I don't know. When you think of a person, you never think who might murder her. Maybe you might know a few things about her that you could fill us in on. I'll try. She go in for jewelry much? Rings, things like that? Funny you should ask that. She was nuts for it. Good things. Rings? Had a couple of beauties. Diamonds they were, big stones. Cost 4000 I know she used to put most of her money into those rings. She'd buy them on time? Yeah. I remember one night she was overjoyed. The night she paid them off. Cost a lot of dough. Can you describe those rings for us? Not too good. I can give you the name of the jeweler she bought them from. That'll do. Do you know anybody else that we might talk to? Don't know any of her friends. She was an only child. No living relatives that I know of. How about her landlady? Yeah. I guess that's it, Harry. Thank you. For what? 
I wish I could help more. If everybody had your attitude, we'd be out of a job. Before we left the Blue Fox, Harry Schumann gave us the address of Laura Barkley's jeweler. The next morning, we checked with the manager of the store, and he gave us a complete description of the two diamond rings which the dead girl had purchased. They were valued at $4,000. He gave us detailed drawings of the rings. We went back to the office, gave the information to burglary detail. An all-points bulletin was put out describing them. Pawn shops throughout the city and state were alerted to watch for the stolen rings. We had lunch with Chief Thad Brown at Costas Cafe. Never mind, O'Mara. I'll get it. Oh, thank you, Chief. I'll get the tip. Stew was good. Mm-hmm. Could I have some change for the cigarette machine? Thanks. Need any cigarettes, Joe? No, no thanks, thank you. Let's go. What do you think, Thad? The description of the rings and the M.O. should help. They haven't turned up. Good chance he's holding on to him. Could be his first job. Probably scared. Anybody check back over the neighborhood there? This is the afternoon and this morning. A lot of door salesmen through that district. All been checked out. It's a dead end. Now where? If only those prints are checked out. Well, they didn't. Got a kickback from Brereton in Sacramento on his M.O. No make. We'll have to get him with what we've got. Here's the car. Sure you picked up all the loose ends? We've been back over the course three times. Go over it again. Keep going over it until something breaks. For the next ten days, we retraced our steps from the room where the crime was committed throughout the neighborhood to the place where she worked, back to the same dead end. Ben and I checked and double-checked each other to make certain that neither of us had overlooked even the smallest detail of the investigation. We got no place. It was 8 a.m., January 19th. Homicide, Friday. This is Rubles and Burglary, Joe. Yeah, Dick. Got something for you. Job pulled last night. A couple of watches, strand of pearls. How do we figure in it? His M.O. Yeah? Gotta get in through the garbage chute. Besides fingerprints and photographs, one other mark by which the unknown criminal is identified is by his method of operation, his M.O. Once a thief finds a successful means of operation, he seldom changes it. In our search for Laura Barkley's murderer, we had checked our files and found no criminals at large whose practice it was to gain entrance through a garbage chute. It was reasonably safe to assume that this was the same man. It was 2 p.m., January 23rd. I was on my way back from the record bureau. Just had a call, Joe. Elmer Radcliffe. Informant? Yeah. Says two days ago he heard about some guy who was making the rounds trying to peddle a couple of diamond rings. Same ones? He's not sure. Doesn't know what the guy looked like. Any idea where the guy is now? Hasn't been around since. Told Elmer to keep his eyes open. Oh, that's good. Come in here, you two. What do you got, Thad? This report just came down from burglary. Pawn shop down in North Main took in a watch and a strand of pearls last night. Yeah? Same stuff that Rubles called you about. Yeah, I remember. Where's it dying? Same guy tried to peddle a couple of diamond rings. 10 a.m., January 25th. Thad Brown arranged to have all pawn shop detail calls concerning the suspect put through to us on extension 2521, homicide. Five days passed. No further word. Homicide, Friday. This is George Rose. I run the Harbor Pawn Shop, second in May. Yeah, what's the matter? Man in here, trying to turn those diamond rings. The ones on the stolen property list. I can't talk now. Stall him, we'll be right down.
Come on, Ben, move it. Yeah? The next corner. There it is. Just up the block. Pull up. All right, let's go. Hell. Here we are. Say, fella, look out, Joe. He's got a gun. You all right, Joe? Yeah. Out the back way. Let's get him. There he goes, up alley. Can you hit him? We didn't stop him. Watch it. Come on, Joe. He's turning on the spring. He ran into that cafeteria up the street. Come on, let's run. Where'd he go? You see him? Yeah, there he goes. He's headed for the kitchen. Come on. Stop that man. Stop him. Out the back door, into the alley. There he goes. Duck Ben. All right, Joe, stop. He's not stopping. Stay clear. He's down. All right, come on. All right, get his guns. Yeah. He got him in the leg, Joe. Hit his head when he fell. All right, snap him on. Huh. Look on the little finger of his right hand. Two diamond rings. Yeah. Doesn't make sense, does it? What's that? $4,000 worth of diamonds, and he's lying on a pile of garbage. story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On April 2nd, 1947, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 81, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Laura Barclay's murderer was identified as Martin Eric Swanson. He was tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. His case was fought through the Supreme Court of California and in the United States Supreme Court. In both instances, his conviction was upheld. Last Friday morning, after a delay of five years, Martin Eric Swanson was executed in the lethal gas chamber at the state penitentiary. You have just heard Dragnet, a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of Acting Chief of Police, W.A. Wharton, Los Angeles Police Department. Dragnet honors the city of Youngstown, state of Ohio, and the men who make up the Youngstown Police Department, another of America's great law enforcement agencies. One of these men, Chief of Police Edward J. Allen, honored as Policeman of the Year, who dedicates his life so that yours might be more secure. An episode of Dragnet from 10 Days Before Christmas in 1949 and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. When we think of women's history in literature and the media, detective fiction probably isn't the first genre that comes to mind. Happily, there have been some stunningly successful women cops and private eyes on TV in the last few decades. Angela Lansbury in Murder, She Wrote, Mayor of Easttown, starring Kate Winslet, Cagney and Lacey with Tyne Daly and Sharon Glass, 
Mariska Hargitay and Law and Order SVU, and so on. Old-time radio isn't really competitive when it comes to women detectives, but there were a few. The very first one was Phyllis Coe, or Phil Coe, in 1936, and guess who sponsored the program? Right, the Philco Corporation. Other women crime fighters followed Kitty Keene, Carolyn Day, Jane Arden, Miss Sherlock, Policewoman, and a couple weeks ago, we featured Mercedes McCambridge as defense attorney. The woman detective you've probably heard most here on the big broadcast is Candy Matson, the hero of Candy Matson Yukon 28209. Co-producer Jill and I have an abiding fondness for the title character, as she's portrayed by Natalie Masters. She revels in being a blonde bombshell, but doesn't suffer fools gladly, and she always asserts herself and her intellect. The story goes that the actor and writer Monty Masters created the show for himself, but that his wife Natalie's mother convinced him to make the protagonist a woman and to give the part to her daughter. The result was set and produced in San Francisco, and it made good use of that setting, as you'll hear in this episode titled The Cable Car Murder Case. It contains a reference to the hit Louis Jordan Ella Fitzgerald record Stone Cold Dead in the Market, and it comes from NBC, July 7, 1949, and Candy Matson, Yukon 2, 8209. Hello, Yukon 28209. Yes, this is Candy Matson. Do you have a little unsolved murder in your home? Got some blackmail you want to unload? Are you the victim of some vulgar extortionist? I know a girl you should meet. She may not be the greatest private eye in the world, so what if it does cost you three or four hundred dollars? She sure is sweet. She's Candy Matson. Like to meet her? Hello. Candy Matson? Well, I wasn't sure when I looked in the mirror this morning. Had a rough night, eh? Oh, there have been rougher ones. Look, voice, before you get caught with my receiver down, who are you and what do you want? As to who I am, you'll find out very shortly. What I want is you. How romantic and over the phone yet. Let me finish. What I want is you to lay off that cable car business. Oh, that. Well, I'm afraid I can't. You see, I was sitting beside him when they discovered his transfer had been punched sort of permanently. That's how things happen with me. I get into the craziest routines. You see, I used to be a model. I've been told I have the proper displacement for such a career. But I found there wasn't enough money in it. A girl has to maintain a nice apartment on Telegraph Hill, keep enough clothes to highlight the uh, displacement I mentioned, and also eat, doesn't she? Sure. So I turn private eye. You meet a better class of people, mostly named Rigger or Mortis. Now take this cable car deal. It's positively fantastic. But after all, this is radio, isn't it? Like to hear how the whole thing happened? Leave us trip along to Act One. (laughs) 
I wanted to get downtown that morning, but I couldn't take the F car on Stockton. They were ripping up about 87 streets, which is par for the court. So I walked down Telegraph Hill and up to Mason. That's where the Bay and Powell cable car stopped. All aboard! Come on, Lana, show that shapely ankle. We gotta make the Fairmont by Whitsuntide. The car was loaded, and so was the character next to me. I tried to budge into the seat between him and the fisherman's wharf dowager, but I couldn't quite make it. I'd forgotten my shoehorn. Say, pardon me, but would you mind reading your Wall Street Journal over that away a bit? I'd like to sit in here. Oh, if you insist. A knight of old. He budged his hips a quarter of an inch, and I slipped in, ready for my rocket ride over the hill and down into town. The trip, as usual, was uneventful. Three smashed fenders and several choice words I'd never heard before, but I wrote them down. By the time our prairie schooner reached the turntable at Market Street, the crowd on the car had thinned out. But uh, Buster was still beside me, his head buried in common and preferred. Market Street! I started to get down. Hey, lady, take your boyfriend with you. We're heading back up the hill. Boyfriend? I'll sue. He looks like the advance man for Lewis and Clark. How do you like that? He fell asleep over a stocks and bonds. I looked again. Hipsy wasn't asleep. Hipsy was stone cold dead on market. What a twist. I, who always went on the prowl for a whodunit, got one literally tossed into my lap. He just hadn't gone out of this world serene-like. Oh, no. There was a steady slurp, slurp of blood trickling down his vest just north by northeast of the equator. After a half-hour wait full of questioning by homicide leg men, I knew my morning shopping tour was rained out. And after all, I was only going to buy an emerald clip to match the glint in my eye. Well, that would have to wait. I knew the next step. I grabbed a cab home. I wasn't long in waiting. Right on cue. And if it was the right cue, it would be Lieutenant Ray Mallard from headquarters, daintily pressing his cuticles against my apartment buzzer. I was right. What? I've been expecting you. Come on in, Mellard. You've been expecting me? Why, Candy? Naive little rover boy, you. Have a drink? No, no, I'm not in the mood. Uh, just make it a double. Sit down, Mellard. Let's be civilized. Take off your hat. It is off. Oh? <laughs> Candy, for once I'm puzzled. You're just saying that. Yeah, because it's true. I've checked and rechecked. No matter how many loose ends I tie together, I still get no connection between you and Dwight Ellsworth. Dwight Whosworth? Ellsworth, your extremely limp traveling companion on the cable this morning. Mallard, I can give you an angle on that. Yeah? Yeah. The angle being that I didn't know him from Adam. Level? Straight. Oh, look, honeypot, this mediocre dialogue is getting us nowhere. What did you haul your size 11s in here for? Oh, frankly, I don't know. Uh, here, fill it up, will you? Well, you're not just going around in circles, Mallard. You're going around in doubles. Yeah, yeah. Like I've said before, Candy, you've got a pretty view from here. Oh? Wait till I turn around. I mean from your window. Look at that ship down there, just docking. Hmm? Where? Down there. There's oh. romance for you. Probably just in from the far east. Here's your drink. Oh, thanks. You know, it is sort of romantic. Don't you think it'd be fun to jump on a tramp like that and whisk off to the South Sea? Hmm? On a honeymoon? No. That's what I thought. South Sea. 
Mallard. Don't call me Mallard. Why not? We're just playing for ducks, aren't we? Oh, very crisp. Playing for ducks. No, Candy, we aren't. Not in this case. We've got a dead man in our hands. Rudy Toot Toot shot right through the heart. And you were sitting next to him. Sure, sure. Go on, now get out of here. What? You heard me. Lift your hindquarters and get back to headquarters. Candy, I don't like that look. You've got something on your mind. Yeah, yeah, but you wouldn't recognize it if I told you about it. Uh, one word of warning. Don't dabble. You're in deep enough. Got it? Got it. Here's your hat. Grab it. So long, Mallard. See you around a jailhouse sometime. Fi-fo-fum. Twas then I smelled a big fat fee. That great, big, kind of attractive Mallard. He missed the boat. Oh, he saw it, but he missed it. It was that ship he saw docking. That was the first time I came out of the dark since my Toonerville ride down the hill in the morning. I needed help. So I called an old friend of mine, if you can call that help. Rembrandt Watson was his name. He was a photographer and other things. He spent most of his life in the dark room dabbling with bottles. His negatives and prints were sharp. His thought processes not quite. But he'd given me assistance in the past, so I called him. Rembrandt Watson speaking. Photography, portraits, and camera work. Yes, Rembrandt, I know. Also uh, available for gardening, janitorial service, and babysitting. Rembrandt, it's candy. Especially at the over 21. Who? Candy? Now you're tuned in. How oh, dare you, baggage. I was experimenting with a new type of formula. 90 proof for 100. 100. And candy, it works beautifully. There's a delightful little pixie in a pink ballet skirt in my living room. Well, leave her there and get over here immediately to my place. Take a cab. I'll pay for I'd it. I'd much rather have a handsome carriage with a brace of chestnuts. You've got them in your head. Now just do as I say and get over here. Float in, Rembrandt. Gadfrey, where's the man to take me cloak, gloves, and topper? You're wearing a sport coat and slacks, and you know I have no man. And therein lies your basic trouble, my dear. You have no man. Now, Rembrandt. Every man should have a woman. Every woman should have a man. It's the incontrovertible law of the universe. Candy, you should have a man. You? Sure. I'm no longer a man. I'm a sprite, transcending the world. Well, and... stop transcending a moment and come down to Earth. We've got a job to do. How poetic. How idyllic. We've got a job to do. Uh, for money? Eventually. Oh, one of those. Very well, my dear. Bring me up to date. Well, I, I don't really know if I can or not. Good. And I shall leave and return to me formula. Oh, no. What I mean is... The whole story is so fantastic, you'd never believe it. I might. Try me, Candy. Well, I get on a cable car and sit next to a character reading the Wall Street Journal. A strange coupling. A cable car and the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. And when we get to the end of the line, my friend next to me is dead. Probably the ride down the hill frightened him to death. Uh-uh. He looked like a used punch board. He had a neat little bullet hole through his heart. Candy, my little ballerina friend in the pink skirt is more believable than... What you just told me. I told you it was fantastic, but none of how it happened. Now, sooner or later, Mallard is going to come out of his fog. And when he does, I'm going to be out of a fee. A fee that so far doesn't exist, my pretty. It will, if my hunch is right. Now, here's what I want you to do. Go down to the Chronicle and get all the back files you can on Southern Island Steamship Company. The Chronicle? A pleasure. I have a few questionable companions there who indulge in formulas. Stay away from those companions and just do as I ask. Very well, my dove. I go, but 
entirely against my will. And where will you be? Around town, Rembrandt. I've got to do some legwork. Let me assure you, Candy, you have just the right equipment for it, too. A joint. I'll bet they mount slit gullets on the walls instead of deer heads. Well, come on, Candy. Get your tools out and screw up your courage. Yeah, miss, what'll it be? Uh, nothing right at the moment except information. Information, water, both free. What do you want to know? Well, I'm, I'm looking for the purser off the of Dwightsonia. I hear he does his shore duty in here. Uh, that's right. Name Campbell. That head on the table over there belongs to him. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Hello, sailor. Hey, Campbell. Wake up. Uh, I'll leave me Come on, snap out of it. Uh, who are you? What do you want? My name is Candy Matson. I want to ask a question. No, I'm only drinking. Go away. Not until I find out what I want to know. Dwight Ellsworth was murdered this morning. What? I thought that would bring you to. Uh. Well, that's the nicest news I've heard since V.J. Day. What do you want to know? Where did his brother live? That stooge. He's got about as much spine as a water reel. Never mind. I want to find him. He seems to keep his whereabouts as secret as an atomic stockpile. Uh, the whole family ought to be knocked off. He lives out in Seacliff, 25 Dashell Road. Good. A bartender, buy my friend a little reward. And one for yourself, too. Well, so far, so good. Oh, how did I know about Campbell, the purser? Well, you see, I have quite a few friends, most of whom my pal Mallard doesn't approve. So I grabbed the cab and navigated the driver out towards Seacliff. It was so foggy I couldn't see the meter. But I paid him anyway, gave him a neutral tip and dismissed him. There it was, 25 Dashell Road. An austere-looking cabana. One that dared you to ring the front doorbell. I dared. I had the awful feeling I should have been around at the side door delivering hand laundry. Good evening. Well, except for the fog, yes. Uh, is Mr. Ellsworth in? Yes, he is. But I'm afraid I must ask you to leave. There has been a death in the family. I know. That's why I'm here. Come in, please. Thank you. Walk this way, please. Oh, I'm afraid I, I couldn't. Even if I live to be a hundred. Mind your tongue, young lady. You're in the house of an Ellsworth. Oh, hoity toity. The old babe had delusions of grandeur. Well, no need to get uppity with me. I've mingled with royalty. I once played a bit part in a Rita Hayworth picture. But this old gal was really something. She couldn't have been more than 45, yet looked like something out of the barracks of Wimpole Street. She ushered me into a large ceilinged living room, and there on the divan was my boy his head lowered into his hands and quite obviously touched. Quite obviously. Roger, this young lady is here to see you. I don't believe you mentioned your name. Uh, Candy Matson. Matson? You in shipping, too? Mm, of a sort. Oh, uh, this is my wife, Miss Matson. You'll pardon me if I don't seem hospitable, but my brother was murdered this morning. I know. I was sitting next to him when it happened. You were? Don't talk to her, Roger. 
I don't trust her. This whole thing is a threat of some kind. No, it's not a threat. It's a business proposition. I'll come right to the point. You see, I'm a private detective. Oh, one of those persons. Put your nose back down, Mrs. Ellsworth. I want to get the show on the road. Yes, I'm a private detective, and I'm in a spot, too. The police think I'm connected with the case in some way, so I'm here for a double purpose. I'm listening, Miss Madison. Roger, I forbid you to speak with this this woman. Too late, Mrs. Ellsworth. Now, this is it. I'm in this business to make money. Give me a check now for $300, and I'll find out who killed your brother, and I'll also clear myself. Roger, I'm warning you. Naturally, you want to see the killer of your brother brought to justice, don't you, Mr. Ellsworth? Don't you? I... Yes, yes. Here, I'll make a check out right now. Thank you. Just make it out to Candy Matson. Payable today. The lovely collection of guns you have, Mr. Ellsworth. You hunt much? Mm, oh, yes, yes. My wife and I are quite fond of shooting. Uh, she's an excellent shot. Ah, there you are. Thank you. I'll be in touch with you sometime tomorrow. Mr. Reed didn't say a word. She just stood there against the fireplace and shot sparks through me. After I waved the check in the air a few times to dry the ink, she showed me to the door. Very clever, aren't you? Taking advantage of a weak-willed man. I wonder who made him that way. Don't cash that check. I mean it. Don't cash that check. Mrs. Ellsworth, $300. I need the money, badly. I need some new rolls for my player piano. I buzzed back downtown. I wanted to cash that check in a hurry. I knew of only one person who would give me the crisp green at that hour of the night. Uncle Charlie, the honest miller who ran the chase room. Uncle Charlie, in the strict sense of the word, was a gentleman. So with a tender little pat on my cheek, he cashed the check and I went up Telegraph Hill and home. All of a sudden, my eyes did a couple of inverted loops. Oh, my lights were on. Who's in here? All right, speak up. Oh, Candy, the light of my uh, life. Come join our party. Oh, Rembrandt, you gave me a scare. You don't scare easy what? either, Candy. Got something on your mind? And Mallard. Well, how ducky, a midnight soiree. What goes on here? Well, that chicken you had in the icebox is delicious. Was delicious. Looks like you've done everything but eat the bones. Your vintage is superb, too, Candy. Have a little formula? No. Now, no, come on. What gives? That's my line, Candy. What gives? You're in on something, and I want to know about it. Oh, Mellor, believe me, it, it's nothing. I'm, I'm just trying to parley a couple of hunches. Tall hunches. Look at all those clippings on the South Sea Island Steamship Company. What are they for? I meant to tell you, Candy. I had remarkable success down at the Chronicle. There's everything you want on that steamship line. Oh, Rembrandt, did you have to tell the whole world? Candy, you chide me unnecessarily. I merely had the clippings on the table when Hawkshaw here walks in on me. Okay, Candy, take it from there. I can't tell you yet, Mallard. Nothing makes sense yet. I, I've got about four loose ends that need tying off. If I'd only put two men to following you, I'd save myself a lot of grief. Two days, that's all, Mallard. Just give me two days. I think I'll have it for you. All right. But don't forget, the boys down at Kearney Street headquarters don't love you the way I do. Two days. No more or less. I gotta go. Thanks for the foul, chicken. Ah, very gay. Here, Rembrandt, here's $50 for you. Fifty? My word. What's all this talk about a recession? Go on and take it. Go someplace and stabilize the economy.
I whipped through the old newspaper clipping. It was all there. Fire at sea on Ellsworth ship. Two seamen lost off Ellsworth ship near Honolulu. South Sea Island line ship loses rudder in storm. On and on it went over a period of three years. I threw the papers back on the table. Helped myself to some of Rembrandt's formula. Turned down the lights and went out on the porch. The bay was dark except for an occasional path of light from a passing freighter. I sat down to think and think. Then, click, click, just like that, two little tumblers in my mind fell into place. Only one thing to do, and that was to do it the hard way. The next morning, just as the ferry building siren was announcing 8 o'clock to downtown San Francisco, I got Rembrandt on the phone. Candy, what on earth are you calling me for at this hour? Can't help it. There's work to be done. I did my work last night so extremely well that I'm just going to bed now. Sorry, you'll just have to delay your sack time. Meet me at the corner of Mason and Union in ten minutes, right where the cable car stops. Now, what are we going to do? We're going to take a cable car ride. What? One of those... Bouncing, jerky little contraptions. Not the way I feel this morning. Oh, yes, you are. Union and Mason in ten minutes. All right, Rembrandt, get on. This is the silliest thing you've ever done, Candy. Maybe. We'll see. Dwight Ellsworth was already on the car when I got on here. And alive. How could you tell? He mumbled something when I asked him to move over. Sounds logical. Although I once remember stumbling into a corpse who mumbled for hours after it had been liquidated. Mm, Rembrandt was in one of his rambling moods, so I let him alone. The car pulled over Mason Street, down Washington, and then swung on to Powell and up the hill. Now I watched the buildings and apartments carefully. There was a little red brick building, now a big apartment house. A woman's residence club and so on. Then over the hill, more apartments and the possibilities petered out at Bush. Well, only one thing to do. Canvas all those blocks between Washington and Bush. Okay, Rembrandt, off the car. The strangest corpse I ever did see. Uh, what'd you say, Candy? Off the car, come on. Now what? I just want to get to bed. Well, not for a long time, Boy Blue. Now here's the pitch. You take this building and I'll take the next. We'll alternate as we go along. Ask if a tall woman with a horsey face and dressed something like Queen Victoria ever lived around here. Oh, Candy. I know it sounds wild, but it's got to be done. A horse with a tall face and dressed something like... Oh, Rembrandt, look at me. Get that smoke out of your brain. A tall woman with a horsey face and dressed something like Queen Victoria. You got it? Got it. Okay, get going. It was slow and tiresome. And the answers I got. A tall gal dressed like Queen Victoria. Oh, sister. That was about par. Nope. Nobody like that ever lived here. Are you positive? A dame who fits that description? Yeah. I'm positive. The morning wore on and so did we. We were over on the other side of California Street now, so we stopped and had a bite to eat. I had pickles with mine and Rembrandt had olives on toothpicks in a glass. And again, we picked up the hunt. My heart was suddenly making with a rumba. There, just on the other side of Clay, in front of a three-story red brick house, was a police squad car. There was a little knot of people gathered around. Daintily lifting my crinoline, I did a Mel Patton down the block and up the front steps. I didn't have any trouble finding the room. The door was wide open, and there was a body on the floor. Four representatives of the law were buzzing back and forth. One of the buzzees was Mallard. Well... My little ambassador of violence. 
Why is it you're always around the extremely dead, Candy? I've got no time to brandy the ad libs, Mallard. Who is it? I don't know yet. No identification. Let me see. Huh. A pen pal, maybe. I was right. I knew it. Knew it? Knew what? You're right. He was a pen pal. He wrote me a check last night for $300. His name is Roger Ellsworth. Very interesting. Must be open season on Ellsworth. Okay, Candy. Time you filled in in the blanks. Start. Wait a minute. I want to look at the window over here. Mm-hmm. Mallard, there are a couple of younger Ellsworths living around town here. I'm sure you'd like to see them stay healthy. Yeah? Get out to 25 Dasher Road and pick up an old crone also named Ellsworth. Five will get you 20. She's the one you're after. Uh, all right. But you get back to your place and stay put, understand? I want to have a more illuminating chat with you. Oh, Mallard, I'm, I'm just like putty in your hands. The moon was coming up over Diablo and spraying a path of silver on the bay. Still no Mallard. I wondered what could be wrong. Well, this was it. This was the showdown. Have you seen a tall face with a horsey woman? Oh, Rembrandt. Candy, I'm so mad at you, I could... Oh, what's the use? Now what's the matter? What's the matter, she says. I've been roving all over Powell Street, ringing doorbells. Where did you go, you traitor? Oh, Rembrandt, I'm sorry. In, in the excitement, I forgot all about you. What excitement? There's been another murder. In a moment, there's going to be another I'm looking right at you, Candy. Oh, cool off. Have some formula and stop snorting steam. <gasps> what was that? Your window, Candy. It just shattered. What? Oh, wait a minute. That window didn't shatter by itself. Quick, get the lights, Rembrandt. Now duck down here. What sort of a silly game are we playing now? This isn't a game, believe me. Candy! Candy, are you all right? Yikes, it's the gumshoe. Yes, I'm all right. Where are you, Mallard? Over here. Two houses over. We've got your girlfriend trapped on the roof next to you. Don't move and stay covered. Okay. All right, Mrs. Ellsworth. Are you coming down peacefully, or do we have to play cops and robbers? I'm not coming down until I get that candy match. She did it. She forced me to kill my own brother-in-law. Have it your own way. Okay, loosen her up a bit, boys. Better than the 4th of July. Keep your head down, Rembrandt. Oh, is that what was up? Ready to come down, Mrs. Ellsworth? No, I'm not. That hateful woman! She's ruined my whole life! All my plans! Just because of her snooping and prying! She's going to die, I tell you! Candy, you must have moved slightly just as she shot at you. Well, it was too close, I can tell you. She's dead. Oh, decidedly. I think she was dead before she hit the ground. That one shot got her. We went out to her house, and she was just driving off when we got there. We trailed her up to North Beach, lost her for a block, and then spotted her car at the top of the hill here. We arrived just as she was getting on the roof next door. Okay, now you tell me your little dream. Well, it was that ship docking that set my wheels going around. The name Ellsworth started burning in back somewhere. 
You saw the clippings we dug up. Yeah. The South Sea Island steamship lines were slowly being sabotaged. I did some checking, and I, I found that the insurance companies weren't going to renew. Yeah. I don't know why I didn't tie that in sooner. Oh, it's just that you have too many things on your mind, Mar- Mallard, dear. <laughs> I went out to the place on Dashiell Road, and when I left, I was pretty sure the old girl had knocked off her brother-in-law. Why? Well, for several reasons. One, she was a venomous old witch. Two, you've never seen such a collection of guns in all your life. And her husband admitted she was a darn good shot. I also saw one little pot gun that was very interesting. It had a silencer on it. Uh-huh. That was the one she used on you tonight. And also the one she used on Dwight Ellsworth from the window of that apartment where you found her husband. How do you know? Go back there. You'll see a nice little bullet hole in the curtain with burned powder all around it. Now, don't tell me that... Yes, I'm telling you that she rented that place knowing that her brother-in-law always went downtown on a certain cable car. She waited that morning until we were riding by, and she plugged him. I have now heard everything. And the reason? Dwight Ellsworth, rather than fighting the insurance companies, had decided to sell his steamship line. But the old gal thought she'd beat him to the punch by knocking him off. The steamship company would then fall into her husband's hands. Yeah. What about her husband? Well, after he gave me the check and I left, they evidently had a fearful row and she spilled the beans. Somehow she lured him down to that place on Powell and gave him some lead poisoning, too. And that's all there is to it. Candy, I wish you'd have told me all these things earlier. We might have been able to save the life of Roger Ellsworth. No, it wouldn't do any good. Because if she hadn't killed him, I was going to. What? Mm Mm-hmm. While I was waiting for you to get here, the phone rang. It was Uncle Charlie, the honest miller. That no good Roger Ellsworth. His check bounced like a brand new golf ball. (laughs) What's so funny, Mallard? Listen in again to the further adventures of Candy Matson. Girl Sucker. Well, that's the way it goes. Sometimes you win, sometimes you don't. In this case, nobody did. Except Rembrandt. He'd stocked his darkroom with $50 worth of formula. And not the kind you use on negatives, either. Let's see. Murder on a cable car. Dwight and Roger Ellsworth done in as well as the old gal. One check that bounced. It really does sound fantastic, doesn't it? But I told you this was radio, didn't I? Oh, wait a minute. Maybe I did come out ahead at that. On the way out, Mallard leaned down and kissed me. The first time it ever happened. You know, at times, it's kind of fun to be in the arms of the law. Listen again next week at the same time. For excitement and adventure, just dial... Candy Matson. Yukon 28209. Heard tonight were Helen Cleave, Jack Cahill, and Harry Bechtel, Jack Thomas as Rembrandt, and Henry Leff as Mallard. The program stars Natalie Masters as Candy and is written and produced by Monty Masters. The Cable Car Murder Case from Candy Matson, Yukon 28209, in the San Francisco summer of 1949 and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5 in this first week of spring in 2022. I'm Murray Horwitz. In its dramatizations of American history, the cavalcade of America included quite a few stories of once prominent women in our country's past. That's why we often hear more episodes of the series during March. We're about to hear an example 
that stars the First Lady of the American Theater, as she was known, the Tony, Oscar, Grammy, and Emmy-winning actor Helen Hayes. Those awards might have been the least of her honors. She also won the Presidential Medal of Freedom and the National Medal of Arts. And the annual theater prizes here in Washington are the Helen Hayes Awards. There's another honor I should mention, and it's an appropriate story for Women's History Month. There's an old theatrical club in New York on Gramercy Park, The Players, founded by the 19th-century actor Edwin Booth. Full disclosure, I was a member when I lived in that city. For its first hundred years, it was exclusively a man's domain. But every year, at a gala dinner on Shakespeare's birthday, the club would honor a distinguished woman of the theater, and sometime in the 1940s or 50s, they honored Helen Hayes. In her acceptance speech, after spending time that evening in the rooms of the club normally forbidden to women, Ms. Hayes said, I now know why women can't be members of this club. It's because you don't want them. Finally, on that same day in 1989, the players welcomed women members, and the first one was Helen Hayes. In 2016, the club established an award for women in the theater and named it for Ms. Hayes. Shakespeare figures in the show we're going to hear now, Woman of Steel. We're sorry that the audio is a little iffy in spots, but we think the story and Ms. Hayes' performance are worth it. And be sure to listen to a juxtaposition at the end that amazes us today, a commercial for the insecticide DDT followed by a plea for contributions to fight the alarming increase in cancer. From April 5th, 1948, and NBC, it's Helen Hayes in the Cavalcade of America. The DuPont Cavalcade of America, starring Helen Hayes. Good evening, this is Helen Hayes. Tonight, our cavalcade goes back over a century to the Chester Valley in Pennsylvania. Here lived the young Quaker mother, Rebecca Lucan. By an accident of fate, she became responsible for the most important industry in the valley, the Brandywine Ironworks. Today, that ironworks bears her name, Lucan Steel Company, the world's largest plate mill. Now, Woman of Steel, starring Helen Hayes as Rebecca Lukens on the DuPont Cavalcade of America. Help me. Help me, Rebecca. I must get up. I must work. No, Charles, I still feel very ill. I must get up. I must work. Rebecca, this couldn't be the end. It couldn't be. No, Charles, no. Thee must be patient. I wish I had told thee, Rebecca. The mill and all our circumstances are in desperate straits. Charles, thee will get well. Thee must. And until then, Shadrach Grimes will run the mill. Shadrach Grimes. He is a good man, is he not? 
Remember this, Rebecca. Shadrach is an ambitious man, and ambition makes men strong and weak, good and evil. Charles, please don't talk anymore. We must rest. Rebecca, I have lain in this bed thinking of the many evenings when we have read from Shakespeare together. Shall I read to thee now? No. Thank thee. The page I think of most, I remember well. Rebecca, listen to me. Good Horatio, what a wounded name. Things standing thus unknown shall lift behind me. If thou didst ever hold me in thy heart, absent thee from felicity a while, and in this harsh world, Draw thy breath in pain to clear my honor. I understand, Charles. Charles, look at me. Charles? Oh, no. Charles! Charles! In 1825, when Rebecca Lukens became the widow of Charles Lukens, she was still a young woman, but already she was the mother of four children. Well, as she turned to face the future, there was but one person in the family who could give her aid, Solomon Lukens, her husband's older brother. Rebecca, I know nothing of the iron business, but I can recognize a zero when I see it. But we must find a way to go on. I tell thee there is no money. But Charles said the whole country would soon need boilerplate. That is why he converted the mill, and I'm sure he was right. He must have been. My dear Rebecca, if thee had a fortune, thee still couldn't run an iron mill. Thee is a woman. Aye, Solomon. There's always someone to remind me that I am only a woman. Do they think the mother of four children can forget that? Beg pardon, ma'am? Yes, Mariah. Shadrach Grimes is here to see you. Ask him to come in. Yes, I am glad he is here. He is our superintendent at the mill, and he doesn't agree with thee, Solomon. He thinks I should go on. Good afternoon, ma'am. Shadrach, this is my brother-in-law, Solomon Lucan. How do you do? How do you do? Mr. Grimes, after a study of the books, I don't see how you can encourage Mrs. Lukens to continue. Well, why not, Mr. Lukens? I'll manage things for her. All she has to do is set to home here like she always has, and I'll run the mill fine. The owner of an enterprise must know something of its business. Mrs. Lukens knows nothing of making iron. But I do. I was born a poor man, and I've worked hard and learned my business. And I say I can run that mill. Your ambition is commendable, Shadrach Grimes. But if you should fail, my sister-in-law would remain responsible. I cannot stand by and watch my brother's widow and children walk into poverty. Solomon, then thee would have me put out the fire at the mill? I am the only man left in this family, Rebecca. And since thee is a woman... I, I, being a woman, I dare not walk alone. Although it seems to me I have more strength to go on than I have to abandon my husband's faith. All thee needs now is the strength to be wise. Very well, Shadrach. 
I will go with you. We will put out the fire. It will be a sad sight, ma'am. Let Shadrach attend to that, Rebecca. There's no need to torture thyself watching the death of the mill. No. My father lighted those fires in 1810, and my husband never once permitted them to die out. Now, if the decision is mine to quench those fires, I will see it through. Come. I believe with Macbeth, if it were done when it is done, then for well it were done quickly. Shadrach. Yes, ma'am. What are all those wagons? Where are those people going? Out of the valley, ma'am. I guess with only a woman left, they knew the mill would close. But where are they going? Stop one of them. I want to talk to them. Hey there. Yeah? Hold up. What for? This is Mrs. Loken. She wants to talk to you. It's the Waters family, ma'am. I know. Whoa. Whoa. Howdy, ma'am. How do you do, Enos and Grace Waters? Howdy, ma'am. I stopped you because I wanted to ask you where you are going. Well, we don't know, ma'am. With your father here and your husband, I guess we felt so safe in this valley we never made plans. I guess we just thought the mill in your family would go on forever. <laughs> oh, now, stop crying, Grace. My wife feels powerful sad, Miss Lucan. We all feel sad. We belong in this valley, your family and my family. If we move out of the valley, the valley will die as well as the mill. I want to stay, Enos Waters. Will you stay with me? Rebecca, they can't stay unless the mill goes on. It can go on, Mrs. Lukens. I'll manage things. Enos Waters, if you and your people will stay, I will not close the mill. Well, I never... How could you run a mill? You're a woman... Besides, you've got four children. Yes, Mrs. Waters, I have four children and no husband. What would you do? Don't say no more, Miss Lukens. There's a look in your eye that my father told me he saw in your father's eye when they called him a fool for starting the mill. When I see that look again, it decides me to stay and see what'll happen. Plato, Cicero, turn around and get out! Get out! Shadrach, I do intend to go on with the mill. But are these the best terms thee and I can have? If you want me to stay and run this mill, that's what I want. Very well. Thank thee, Shadrach. I'll let thee know before the day is out if we can do business. The terms may be steep, but I'm the only one around here who knows how to make iron, and I'm worth it. Good day. Good day, Shadrach. Rebecca, he can't consider it. His terms are outrageous. I know, Solomon, but he knows how to make iron, and I don't. And thee will be at his mercy. Not if I learn my business, Solomon. Not if I learn how to make iron, too. How can thee? Thee can't learn it from a book, and thee can hardly go down to the mill. Because I'm a woman? Then thee is going to see something thee hardly expects. He is going to see a woman in that mill, Solomon, at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. 
Shadrach, I want to explain to thee about this order. It's very important. My husband worked hard to get it, and it must be perfect. You don't have to come down to the mill to tell me how to make boilerplate, ma'am. That's my business. But this isn't for a boiler. Look here, Mrs. Lukens. You've been giving orders around here for three months now. Now, am I running this mill, or are you? Shadrach, look over there. What's happening? Shadrach! Shadrach, the rolls are stuck. There's a hot bar stuck in the mill. Shadrach, if the heat of that bar cracks those rolls, it'll be months before we can get others. Do something quick. Are you running this mill or am I? If you are, you take care of it. It's no time to talk. The creek's too low to turn the wheel. Enos, can't we force the wheel over? Well, I'll climb out on her and try. Can you get me some help? Shadrach can't be helping. That's not my work, ma'am. <gasps> Shadrach. Never mind. George Harvey. Yes. Charles Hanscom out on the wheel. Hurry. I'll help thee. Let me get up there. No, Miss Lucas, you stay there. Don't come out here. My weight will help. Push that wheel, man. Miss Lucas, stay back. Push that bit. Now jump, everybody. Jump. She's turning. Venus, jump. Oh, thank heaven. And I say, thank heaven, ma'am, you didn't get up there. That's no place for a woman. I've been telling her this whole mill is no place for a woman. And it never will be. As long as I own this mill, I'll be here, Shadrach. Then it's no place for me. I say pig iron and petticoats don't mix. And I'm through. Good day, Mrs. Lucan. Excuse me, ma'am, but that didn't seem so wise to me. What choice have I got, Enoch? Except to give him the mill. Maybe, but... Shadrach Grimes is a mighty good superintendent, and I got a feeling he won't be such a good enemy. You are listening to Woman of Steel, starring Helen Hayes as Rebecca Lukens on The Cavalcade of America. Sponsored by the DuPont Company, maker of better things for better living through chemistry. Somehow, Rebecca Lukens kept the mill going. Sustained by her husband's dream that iron would one day be vital in building America, she struggled on. And the valley began to think of her only as a businesswoman. But Rebecca had more than the problems of the mill. She remembered she was still a mother. Do keep under the quilt, Martha, dear. Here's thy medicine. Sit down and read to me, Mother. Oh. I must go over accounts with Uncle Solomon. He is waiting. But I want to know what happened to Miss Rossman in the big farm. <laughs> he didn't finish the story. I will, dear, later. And other stories, wonderful stories of kings and queens and the prince called Hamlet and a woman called Lady Macbeth. Why don't thee rest, Solomon? I should go down and look at the mill, Rebecca. The creek is up and I'm worried. This valley is full of old dams and if any one of them breaks... Oh, Solomon. Sometimes I feel guilty at all the worries I have thrust on thee. How can I ever thank thee for thy help? Rebecca, 
Thee has taught me a good lesson in faith when I need it. Now I want thee to see the accounts. The book's balance, Rebecca. By a razor's edge, I can see. However, we got through the winter, Solomon. And if nothing happens, if we get orders at better prices... Mrs. Lucan. Yes, Mariah? There's someone to see you. It's that Shadrach Grimes. Shall I send him in? Shadrach? Here? Yes, Mariah. Ask him to come in. This way, Mr. Grimes. Thank you. I hardly expected to see thee here, Shadrach. I'm sure of that. But does the D&M Construction Company in Philadelphia mean anything to you, Mrs. Lucan? No. It will when you see this contract I discovered your mill has with them. When I tell you I'm their superintendent. But this is dated before Dr. Lucan's died. That's right. But you know how anxious my husband was to get plate orders at that time. And we couldn't fill this order now at prices like this without a loss. A contract is a contract, Mrs. Lukens. That's something you'll have to learn. Shadrach, surely thy firm wouldn't hold Mrs. Lukens to that contract. Why, it would bankrupt her mill. Is that her answer? It's all right with me. Oh, I see. Well, Shadrach, the order will be filled. Good day. That's fine, Mrs. Lukens. Very fine talk. Good day. Rebecca, he knows thy boast was foolish. Anyone can see now thee will have to go into bankruptcy. No, Solomon, I won't do it. Rebecca, be wise. No, Solomon, no. I think there was something very wise in Charles' vision. It is his faith which has pushed me on until... until now, and if... until my road is blocked finally and forever, I cannot and I will not... What... what is it? It's the dam. The mill dam is broken. The dam's gone. The spring floods. I told you the brandy wine was high. Oh, Rebecca, I'm, I'm terribly sorry. Does thee realize what this means? Yes, Solomon. It is the end. I know I never would have quenched those fires as long as I lived. Now the brandy wine has put them out for me. Rebecca, why should thee come here in the middle of the night? Even if the whole place stood perfect, what sort of mill can thee have without the dam? Not enough to fill Shadrach's order. I can see that in the dark. Let me take thee home. Uh, this way, Rebecca. Uh, don't go in there. Thee may step off into the current. Solomon. What? Come here. Uh, what is it? There, look. It's the fire. Solomon, it's the fire in the furnace. Rebecca, I can't believe it. It's an omen. If the flood didn't put out the fires, I shan't put them out. We'll rebuild the dam. We'll fill that order for Shadrach. Enos. Enos Waters. Are you calling me, ma'am? Is the last row of stone in the dam... Yeah, they're putting it in now. It took a month's work, but we're going to have it done by daybreak. But I don't understand, Enos. I've been down watching the race, and the water is so slow to rise, even with all this rain. Well, I don't know about that, ma'am, but you shouldn't stay here all night watching that. Every thread you got on is soaked. You're shivering. I'm all right. 
I'm waiting for Mr. Lukens to come with the pack horse train. He is bringing more iron. We have to get started again, Enos, as fast as we can. Hello. Ain't that him, Mr. Lukens? Solomon, here we are. We've been waiting. I've been hurrying. I wanted to see if the dam was done and what's happening. It's nearly finished, Solomon, but the water is so slow to rise. Yes, that's what I thought would be. Because it isn't going to rise, Rebecca. What do you mean? I passed a new dam, a building upstream, and a big one. That's what's catching all this rain. I found out there's another ironworks, a building upstream. Another ironworks? Who? Rebecca, I hate to tell thee. They say it belongs to Shadrach Grimes. Shadrach? That's what I guessed. But we must have water. We'll never get it now. Just as I told you, ma'am, he'll never give up. Well, I shan't either. I'll just have to convince Shadrach this rain has fallen for all of us. There's no use talking anymore, Mrs. Lukens. It's too bad about my dam, but I warned you, the iron business is no place for a woman. All right. I may be a woman, but I think now I'm as good an iron master as thee, and now I give thee warning. Tomorrow I raise my mill dam six inches. Uh, that will make the water back up on thee. You can't do that. You try it now, go to law. Let's go to law together, Shadrach. Now, Shadrach Grimes, plaintiff against Rebecca Pennock Lugan, Iron Master of Chester County in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, pleading for an injunction to compel the Rebecca Lugan, plaintiff against one Shadrach Grimes of said county in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, defendant to compel the said Shadrach Grimes. <laughs> Solomon. Solomon, I have news. About the trial? What is it, Rebecca? No, no, it's more important than that. This newspaper was sent to me. It's the Baltimore American. Let me read it to thee. Several weeks ago, the first locomotive was the run... The first what? Locomotive. It's called the Sturbridge Lion. It's a steam engine made to run on wheels, and it tows several wagons of goods. But listen, a locomotive was run at Holmesdale, Pennsylvania. Rebecca, I thought thee had news It was important. I thought it had something to do with this trouble with Shadrach Grimes. It has everything to do with it. I'm going to see him. Why? I'm going to tell him the locomotive is coming. It's coming to take him and all of us far beyond this valley, out into the whole country, the whole world. Shadrach, I've come to thy office again to tell thee I'm going to call off my suit. I thought you'd give up. I want thee to do the same. Well, why should I? Because a new day is breaking, Shadrach. And where does it find thee and me? Squabbling over water rights while the rest of the world enters the, the age of steam. Here, read this dispatch. What's that? It's about the first locomotive in America. Shadrach. This is a new day. A day of transportation better than our pack horse trains and canal boats. A day when our vision can range beyond the walls of this valley 
and we can join our work with that of all the people in this land. That's what thee and I must do now, Shadrach. That's our duty. Oh, Mrs. Lukens, you talk fine, and I like to hear it, but well, I don't trust a word of it. Shadrach, what does thee mean? I was born a poor man, but I've worked. Worked hard so my children could have an education and talk about their dreams like you do. But I ain't going to let your fancy words talk me out of my dreams. Shadrach, let us hope our children can work as hard as we have. But they will need vision. And first, we must have vision for them. Shadrach, there's a nation that needs our work as this valley has needed it in the past. Are we going to stay as small as this valley? Or are we going to grow big enough for the future of our children? Mrs. Lukens, I confess I'm sick of this tussling with a woman in a courtroom. There's better work than that for a man. There's better work than that for a man or a woman. Especially if they're good iron masters, like us. Well, I don't know whether you're saying this for your benefit or mine or all of us, but... Well, now I'll tell you something. What, Shadrach? I'm not so slow. I was at Holmesdale and I saw that locomotive run. No, did they? Tell me about it, please. Well, I can tell you they got plans. They want to build more and they need plates. There's an order there, Mrs. Lukens, but it's too big for me alone. It needs all of us. Then all of us must work together, Shadrach. Wait, wait. Think what you're doing, Mrs. Lukens. We don't know whether this is going to be a success or not. We might lose. Shadrach, we can't lose. I believed in this when it was still my husband's dream. And thee and I must believe in it now. For this is not the end of the dream. This is the beginning of a thousand dreams for thy children and mine. All right, Mrs. Lukens. You're as good a businessman as I am, and well, if you believe in it, I will too. Good. Now, Shadrach, let's make the most beautiful boilerplate that's ever been seen. Beautiful? Yes, beautiful. <laughs> Ma'am, let's just make boilerplate ugly as she is. Thank you, Miss Hayes. I'm sure Cavalcade's radio audience joins us here at the Longacre Theater in applauding you and the rest of tonight's cast. <laughs> Helen Hayes will return in a few moments, but first, here's Bill Hamilton of the DuPont Company. To raise bumper crops, the farmer must beat the weeds, or the weeds may beat him. Here, chemical science can be of great help to him. Chemistry has developed a weed-killing compound known as 2,4-D. 2,4-D and DDT are two of the most important chemical aids to agriculture of the past 50 years. DuPont 2,4-D weed killers are now used in almost every section of the country. They offer a broad-scale, economical, comparatively easy way to control weeds, against which, until now, there has been no really satisfactory control. In some cases, yields have actually been doubled. DuPont 2,4-D weed killers sprayed from airplanes have given barley growers in California good control of mustard, wild radish, and knotweed. In North Dakota, wheat growers have cleaned out mustard and annual weeds which were choking their fields. In the south, there were weedy fields which gave only five barrels of rice to the acre. Now, 
They yield 17 barrels after treatment with DuPont 2,4-D weed killers. Think of that. More than three times as much. This same 2,4-D, which is getting such marvelous results for farmers, is also available in a special compound for your own lawn. It can be bought as DuPont Lawn Weed Killer. Weeds wither away and disappear, roots and all, without any harm being done to the grass. With 2,4-D products, it is the formula that counts. The DuPont Company, with years of experience in formulating a wide variety of chemical products, has developed 2,4-D compounds that work successfully under all conditions where 2,4-D is recommended. DuPont 2,4-D weed killers, helping the American farmer to produce crops that are all-time records, helping you to rid your lawn of weeds, are among the DuPont Company's better things for better living through chemistry. And now, our star, Helen Hayes. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight, just while this broadcast has been going on, ten Americans have died of cancer. The time has come to do something about it. There's certainly no question about the generosity of the American people when it comes to helping those in trouble. So each and every one of us must give our support to the American Cancer Society's threefold program of education, service, and research. Let's give. Give generously to the American Cancer Society's drive for funds. Thank you. Next Monday night, the Freedom Train will be in Wenatchee, Washington. There, Americans, as thousands before them, will board it to view the precious documents of our liberty. On our broadcast next Monday night... Cavalcade will be especially pleased to present an original radio play, The Man Who Took the Freedom Train, a delightful story about two young Americans and a visit of the Freedom Train in their hometown. Our stars will be Eddie Albert and Shirley Booth. We invite you to listen. Tonight's DuPont Cavalcade, Woman of Steel, was adapted by Philip Lewis, from an original story by Lucy Kennedy. The music was composed by Arden Cornwell and conducted by Donald Bryan. Featured in tonight's cavalcade with Helen Hayes were Cameron Prudhomme as Solomon, Everett Sloan as Enos, and Ted DeCorsia as Shadrach. This is Ted Pearson inviting you to listen next week to The Man Who Took the Freedom Train, starring Eddie Albert and Shirley Booth. Cavalcade of America is presented each week from the stage of the Longacre Theater on Broadway in New York and is brought to you by the DuPont Company of Wilmington, Delaware. From right around this time in 1948, Ms. Helen Hayes starring in Woman of Steel from the Cavalcade of America and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Our co-producer is Jill Arold Bailey. The audio engineers are Mike Kidd and Kenny Pirog. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. At the outset of the despicable Russian invasion of Ukraine a month ago, 
Much was made of how alien the very notion was of one country invading another for a naked land grab, and worse. It's happened during our lifetimes, but not since the 1930s has it gotten the attention that this European war has. And in 1939, only a couple of decades removed from World War One, the phenomenon was perhaps less surprising, if no less evil. Along with the Italians, Germans, and Japanese, the Soviet Union made its own territorial invasions then, including the 1939 Winter War against Finland. It was a radio broadcast from that war by William Lindsay White, the son of another journalist, William Allen White, that inspired Robert E. Sherwood to write "There Shall Be No Night," a play that won him the third of his three. Pulitzer Prizes for Drama. Unhappily, the work is more relevant today than it would have been just a few months ago, as you'll hear in its radio adaptation starring Frederick March and Florence Eldridge. We're very grateful to collector Ted Davenport of Radio Memories for providing us with this superior recording of the broadcast, which comes from the Sunday after Thanksgiving in 1953, and the NBC Star Playhouse. NBC Star Playhouse. NBC presents Helen Hayes, Frederick March, Rex Harrison, Lily Palmer, and many others of the most eminent actors of our time, transcribed in the NBC Star Playhouse. And here is our host, John Chapman, drama critic of the New York Daily News, to introduce this week's star and play. Mr. Chapman. Thank you. Soon after Russia invaded Finland, Robert E. Sherwood heard a broadcast from Helsinki, a broadcast for help from America. This broadcast aroused Sherwood to anger, to pity, and to a desire to do something. What he did was to write at white heat his Pulitzer Prize-winning "There Shall Be No Night." This play has lost none of its excitement or pity or anger with the passing years, and now. To present it to you, we have one of our great Mr. and Mrs. Acting teams, Frederick March and Florence Eldridge, as that fine and gentle Finnish couple, Doctor and Mrs. Valkanen. The year is 1939, and the scene is the home of Doctor and Mrs. Valkanen in Helsinki, Finland. A group of American radio technicians have set up their equipment for a shortwave radio broadcast. <laughs> Getting Geneva. It's almost time, Dave. Okay, guys. Ready, Doctor? Hmm? Oh, yes, yes. Oh, this is a most dull speech. I hate to read. Hello, Charlie. This is Gus. Uh, no, it's beautiful up here. Hey, there can't possibly be another crisis this year. No kidding. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I've got a time check. Forty-three. Woof. Okay, stand by. Okay, Dave. Get ready. This is Station WEAF, New York. We take you now for a special broadcast to the Finnish capital of Helsinki and NBC correspondent David Corwin. <coughs> Go ahead, Helsinki. Hello, America. This is David Corwin in Helsinki. 
We're bringing you the first in a series of broadcasts from Finland, Sweden, and Norway, those little countries far in the north of Europe which are at peace and intend to remain at peace. Finland is a country with a population about equal to that of Brooklyn. Like many other small nations, it achieved its freedom 20 years ago, but unlike some others, it has consolidated that freedom. It has made democracy work. I am now speaking from the home of Dr. Carlo Valkanen, the eminent neurologist who has received high honors from many nations and who has just been awarded the Nobel Prize for Medicine for his contribution to the understanding of mental disease. Many of you have read his book, The Defense of Man, and he is known to many others as he has lived much in America, and Mrs. Valkanen is a native of New Bedford, Massachusetts. I give you Dr. Valkanen. I've never heard so much introduction. Go ahead. Hmm? Oh. Dr. Valkanen? Uh, <clears throat> to tell the truth, I, uh, I think the Nobel Prize was premature since I did not yet finish the work. <laughs> but still, I'm glad to have the prize because the money will enable us to go on a holiday. Hmm? Oh. Now I will read. Uh, Dr. Carell has said, for the first time in history, a crumbling civilization is capable of discerning the causes of its decay. For the first time, it has the gigantic strength of science. And he asks, will we use this power? This question is more important than the possible results of the Munich crisis. It is no doubt known to you that insanity is increasing at an alarming rate. Indeed, the day is in sight when the few remaining sane people will be put into confinement and the lunatics will be at large. Does this seem an exaggeration? And look about you. You see the spectacle of a brilliant nation where the spiritual resistance of its people has been so lowered that they are willing to discard all moral sense, all principles of justice and civilization. It is all very well to say free men will triumph over slaves. But how long can free men possess the spiritual strength that enables them to be free? That is a problem science has not solved. True, in the fight against disease, we have been remarkably successful. Tuberculosis, typhoid, the number of fatalities is being steadily reduced. But then look at the degenerative diseases, insanity, the degeneration of the mind, and cancer, the degeneration of the tissues. These are the diseases which are going up in almost the same proportion as the others are going down. Degeneration, that is the most terrifying word in our vocabulary. Doctors are beginning to ask is there not a suspicious connection between our victories and our defeats? Are we perhaps saving our children from measles and mumps that they may grow up to be neurotics and end their days in a madhouse? We have counted too heavily on pills and serums, just as we have counted too heavily on concrete fortifications and navies to protect our frontiers. What good are these if man lacks the power of resistance within himself? I'm not pleading for a return to measles and mumps. I'm only saying that all of us have been trying too hard to find the easy way out. And we, can we learn before it is too late? Before the process of man's degeneration has been completed, and he is again a witless ape, groping his way back into the jungle? Oh, but why, why should I go on reading and spoiling your Sunday? I, uh, I want to send greetings to uh, New, New, New Bedford, Massachusetts. And to them and to all my friends in America, I say thank you and God bless you and goodbye. Thank you, Dr. Carlo Valkanen. This is David Corwin in Helsinki returning you now to NBC in New York. Oh. Okay, everybody. Woo! <laughs> 
Very brave. Oh, was it? Never, never, never will I speak into one of those evil things again. Darling, you oh. were wonderful, oh. wasn't he, Uncle uh, Valdemar? If they listen to that, they listen to anything. Yeah. Oh, no. Very good, Doctor. You, you really think so? Came huh? through fine. Uh, I liked it myself. I'm going to get your book. Why, thank you. I'll pack up this. Right, Gus. Hey, what a, what a charming man, that Mr. Gus. Eh? Yes, you know, the other day in Munich, when I got word to come up here, I tried to buy your book. Huh? The bookseller assured me solemnly that there could be no such book. If my books weren't forbidden in Germany, Mr. Carween, I'd be ashamed of myself. <laughs> ah, anybody home? Eric! Miranda! Eric! Home! Uh, and Patsy, hello, my dear. Hello, doctor. <laughs> Look, I brought this from Vipuri. Vipuri Rinkelia. I'll have it in my coffee. <laughs> Mr. Carween, this is our son, Eric. And Katri Alquist. How do you do? You missed it. I, I was wonderful on the radio. I tried to get back, Papa, but we had work to finish. You see, Mr. Carween, huh? I'm an object of contempt to my 17-year-old. While I talk, he's a man of action. He's uh, He's been working on the Mannerheim line. Oh, I seem to have heard of it. It's on the Isthmus, on the Russian frontier. Our own little Maginot. You don't say. I tell him it's silly, but he won't listen. These little concrete pillboxes and tank caps. Well, what's the difference as long as they enjoy doing the work? Oh, I suppose it's good exercise. Hundreds of students do it. Katri here also goes and works. They have a lot of fun, you know, maybe a little romance in the evenings, eh, Katri? In the evening we have discussions, mostly. <laughs> well, right now we'll have a drink. I made some Parker House points just to celebrate Papa's broadcast. The Parker House bar was the first place my father headed for after they read the family will. <laughs> I may not be able to do much else, but I can make the best rum punch in Europe. Yes, if you're here on New Year's Day, you must join us, Mr. Corween. And Mr. Gus, too. Oh, I'm sure we won't forget. Please. How about a toast? Oh, let me. To the late Alfred Nobel. Ah, the dynamite king. Oh, Eric. I don't care where the money came from, Eric. $40,000 to Alfred Nobel. Ah, yes. <laughs> what are you studying in school, Eric? Economics and sociology. Yeah, and skiing. Hmm. He can't make up his mind whether he wants to be another Karl Marx or an Olympic champion. Oh. <laughs> Have you been much in the Soviet Union? Oh, yes, yes. We lived there when Father was working with Pavlov. And you really believe they might invade Finland? We have to be prepared. I admit the Nazis have been highly successful in the... Well, in terrifying people of the Bolshevik menace, but... All the times I've been in Moscow, I've never seen anything but a passionate desire to be let alone in peace. Oh, Uncle Valdemar, must you play now we're talking? Uh, play softly. You see, I, I know the Russians too, Mr. Corween. They love to plot, but they don't love to fight. They're like the Italians. They're too charming. They, they don't know how to hate. Oh, I'll answer it. What's that you're playing, Mr. Sedestrom? No. Sibelius. Look who's come to visit, Carlo. Well, Dr. Simpson. How do you do, everyone? Mm. Oh, don't let me interrupt you. Nonsense, nonsense. This is Mr. Corween of the American Radio. Oh, I've heard a good deal of you. Dr. Simpson is the German consul general in Helsinki. He knows about everybody. <laughs> My hobby. Mm. Only this minute I talked to Berlin on the phone here, doctor. They said your broadcast came through excellently and was highly entertaining. It was broadcast in Germany, Mr. Simpson? Unfortunately not. But it was heard on the government shortwave monitor. I seem to remember I said some things that were not for your government to hear. We are accustomed to hear the worst about ourselves here, Doctor. We always hear Mr. Corrine here. Yeah, you, you mustn't be frightened by Dr. Simpson. He, 
He was an anthropologist before he became a diplomat. He's most broad-minded. Coffee, Dr. Simpson? Oh, thank you, Eric. Is the work getting on well at the Manaheim? It seems to be. I, I see only a small part of it. The Finnish defenses are magnificent. No one will challenge them. The Czechs had fine defenses, too. Ah, but the Finns are more intelligent. They have no allies to betray them. <laughs> How do you feel about that, Mr. Corwin? I'm afraid I have no feelings, Doctor. I've been de-educated. I've covered Manchukuo, Ethiopia, Spain, China, Austria, Czechoslovakia. All I can say now is that when Dr. Valkanen says the human race is in danger of going insane, he is not so much a prophet of future doom as a reporter of current fact. <laughs> well, I seem to be sounding off the Parker House punch, no doubt. <laughs> Have some more. Well, I'm afraid I have to be pushing off. Gus? Already, Dave. Now, do come back for New Year's. I'll try. Good. Uh, goodbye, Miss Alcris. Goodbye. Eric? Oh, come back soon. Doctor, I'll uh, see you two gentlemen to the door. Excuse me, please. What a nice man. You like him, Eric? Well, I would like to travel all over like that. I wouldn't like it. It makes you bitter. No, no. A journalist like Mr. Corween has an opportunity to see the truth. Of course, maybe the ultimate truth is the ultimate futility. Oh, dear. <laughs> you know, Eric, you really should have a beard, even at 17. <laughs> Play something gay, Uncle Valdemar. David Corween in Stockholm. The November skies are gray over little Finland this week. Tonight, many Finnish eyes look toward the skies. The situation with the Soviet Union has reached the breaking point, and it may only be a matter of hours before the diplomatic war erupts into a shooting war. Oh. Why did you turn it off, Eric? I don't like to listen to such things. It's true, though. Only a moment ago, you were watching out the window. I was looking at the stars. There are no stars. You were watching for bombers. No, Katri, there are no bombers coming here. That's what they said in Poland, but they came. They were Nazi bombers. The Russians went into Poland, too. Oh, yes, yes, it cost them nothing. The Nazis had done the work. But they know if they attack us, it would mean a betrayal. The suffering would be insignificant compared to the murder of their own honor. I don't believe they had any honor. But two people who are going to be married, we disagree too much. Huh? You haven't changed your mind, have you? No. Next summer, when I stop being a student? Yes, sir. Oh, we'll have a wonderful wedding, Catri. I can see it now with your father looking stern and magnificent in his colonel's uniform. <laughs> and mother behaving like a grand duchess and Uncle Waldemar playing the piano. And then we'll escape from all, all of them, and go home. And have several children. Where? Catri. Oh. Why do you draw away? I just thought. If war comes... No, no, don't think about it. Just kiss me. <clears throat> oh, Uncle Waldemar, I, I didn't hear you come in. Excuse me. Yes, we were, we were just... I saw what you were doing. Now, did you hear the news just now? We turned it off. Eric says they won't attack. What do you say, Uncle Waldemar? I say they will. My father doesn't agree with you. And what does he know? As much as anyone could. He understands the Russians. He was a friend of Pavlov and Gorky and even Lenin himself. All the gentlemen you mention are dead. And the revolution, that's dead too. 
It's embalmed and exposed in a glass coffin in front of the Kremlin. It's, it's respected, but dead. Well, what's this? Oh, just a discussion, Mother. Ah, uh, where's Papa? At the laboratory still. He had about 30 dogs barking and howling around him when I left. What were you discussing? Oh, whether the Russians will attack. Mr. Walsh at the American Embassy told me they're ordering all Americans home. He was very guarded in his words, but he seems to think things are rather serious. If they attack, then we'll fight. With what? With whatever we have. And how long do you think that would last? A few days, a few weeks, who knows? And you, Eric, would you fight? Yes, Mother. I would fight. Spoken like a true Boy Scout. Don't be silly, Eric. He is not being silly. If he fights, he'll be dead. Don't listen to her, Eric. Why shouldn't he listen? I'm his mother. You're an American. You don't understand. I understand that Eric is my son. It's his life. What good is his life if it has to be spent in slavery? How could an American understand? No, no, Katri, of course. Mother can understand. Americans fought for the same thing. For the same reason. Yes, but it's as your father says. When life becomes too easy for people, something changes their character. Something is lost. Americans are too lucky. Mrs. Valkonen, in your blood is the water of those oceans that have made you safe. Don't try to persuade Eric that life here should be as easy as it is in America. He's a Finn. The time has come when he must behave like one, please. Oh, Catri, dearest. Catri, Eric calls you dearest. Are you in love with each other? Yes, Mother. We... We're going to be married. Oh, I'm glad. Very glad. I started to speak to you as children just now. And I find you're grown up. Miranda, you know that litter of puppies? Out of 31, seven are definitely... What's the matter? Carlo. What is it? Tell me. Carlo... Eric and Cartry are going to be married. No. Yes, Father. Well, now, you see, ever since he was a baby, I've been training him to be a gentleman of taste and discrimination. <laughs> I congratulate you. It's, it's almost unbelievable. We must have some schnapps and a big supper to celebrate. Well, I'm hmm? afraid it will have to wait, Carla. We're all going to church first. To church? At night? Are you mad? There's going to be a great service. The president and everybody will be there. What for? To pray that we'll be able to defend ourselves. Defend ourselves? Against what? I, I won't hear any more of this talk. You must hear it, Carlo. Eric is ready to fight. I can fight as well as anyone. Is that what people go to church to pray for? Ability to imitate our enemies in the display of force? Is that intelligent thinking? Father, this is no time for intelligent thinking. When your enemies use force, you can't throw books at them. No time for intelligent thinking. So this is the climax of the century of scientific miracles. This is what they worked for, Pastor Cock. Eric, Lister, they saved our lives so we might build Mannerheim lines in which to die. Now, if you don't want to go to church, we'll go along. Oh, what's the use? I may as well come along. Come, I'll help you dress. Very well. But I reserve the right to say my own prayers. Ah, poor father. What a terrible thing for him. He has so much faith to lose while we have only our lives. Eric, I do love you, Eric. I'm sorry if I said that. What you said was true. Father and mother don't really live here in this country in this time. They live in the future as they imagine it. They're wonderful people, both of them, wonderful and, and unreal. But you are real, Katri. You know what we have to face. Harry called me. 
I'm so frightened. What's that sound? Bombers. It can't be. I think it is. It's a raid. Listen. Good God. Those are Russian planes. What is it? What's happened? It's an attack, Father. Those are bombs. God, God have pity. For that which we have greatly feared has come upon us. Carla with you? No, I left him at the hospital. Is Eric home? Upstairs, packing. Packing? Joining the ski troops. He has to leave this afternoon. It's no use to try and stop him, Miranda. No, I won't try. Is Katri here? Not yet. She's helping in the square where the bombs fell. Is it very bad? Well, not as bad as expected. About 30 people killed. Algren, the policeman, told me. You see, it wasn't so bad after all. It never is. Oh, Miranda, you don't know. You don't know. You're a pessimist. Pessimist? Uh, last year, when I was in Germany, I saw the Nazis. And I saw men marching, 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 day and night. Today, Germany, tomorrow, the world. Uh, they didn't even know where they were marching to. And what's worse, they didn't care. Just to march was enough. I remember I was with one of my friends, an old musician, looking from the window of his house. Across the street, a truckload of young Nazis were wrecking the home of a Jewish dentist. I remember he whispered to me, they say they're doing that to fight Bolshevism. Well, it's a lie. They are Bolshevism. They can't win. Can we stop them? You're a good Christian. You must believe they can't win. I can also believe in the coming of Antichrist. And Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go forth to deceive the nations. Hello. Anybody home? In here, Carla. Well, see who I brought home with me. Mr. Corween. He came back to Helsinki. Hello, Mrs. Walkenden. Oh, Mr. Sedestrom. I was on my way to see you and met your husband on the bus. Oh, how nice to see you. Will you stay now? As long as there's a war. The... The real reason I came here is that I was talking to Jim Walsh at the American Legation. He asked me to beg you both to leave Finland. He can get passage for you to Sweden by plane. And you hear that? Well, it's very nice of Mr. Walsh, but unfortunately I am needed here for a while. A great shortage of doctors. I might be needed at the front. Well, that isn't exactly suitable work for a winner of the Nobel Prize. Not suitable work for any member of the human race, Mr. Corween, but someone must do it. Why must it be you and Eric? Eric? He's upstairs packing his things. He leaves in a few hours for the army. When did he decide this? A long time ago. Before I came. So. One by one. Who will that be? Come in. Ah, oh, Herr Simpson, come in. You remember Mr. Corween? Of course. How do you do? I came to say goodbye to all of you. No, we are, we are not going. I am going. Oh. Back to Germany. I can only stay a few minutes. Oh, sorry to hear that. But I can understand this is not the place for you under the circumstances. It is not the place for you either, Valkenen. I advise you also to go. First Mr. Corrine tells me, and now you. <laughs> Mr. Corrine is a remarkably informed man. 
He is aware of the inevitable outcome of this war. 200,000 Finns against 10 million. Very well. We'll be conquered and ruled from Moscow just as we used to be ruled from St. Petersburg. I shall continue my experiments. You Maybe are a little being more... naive, Doctor. Naive? Do you think your enemies are these communists who now invade your country? That is what I think. The Russians think so too, but they are wrong. We are your enemies, Doctor. You speak with undiplomatic frankness. Dr. Volkanen is a scientist accustomed to facts. What, uh, what is going to happen to Finland, Doctor? What happened to Poland? It is dead. It will never rise again. Today, the remnants of the Polish people are scattered from the Rhine to the Pacific coast of Siberia. This is a studied technique, a process of annihilation. It was not invented in Moscow. You will find the blueprints of it not in Das Kapital, but in Mein Kampf. You are a scientist. D do you approve of this technique? Naturally, I regret the necessity, but I admit the necessity. It is necessary in constructing our great state that inferior races be considered as slaves. As a scientist, how can you establish proof that these races are inferior? You, you know it's a lie. Of course it is a lie biologically. But we prove it by the simple expedient of asserting our superiority. If you resist, you will die. Where can one go to escape? I assure you, the United States is secure for the present. Well, Doctor, I, I appreciate your motives in warning me. I understand all you say is confidential. Oh, no. If it were confidential, I would not say it in front of Mr. Cohen. You may repeat it all. You will not be believed. The proof of our superiority is that our objectives are so vast that pygmy-minded enemies simply have not the capacity to believe them. I advise you to believe me, Dr. Walkenen, and to make haste. I say goodbye, Herr Doctor. I hope we part friends. Frau Walkenen, Mr. Corwin... My compliments. I'll see you to the door. Mr. Corwin. Yes? You're going back to the American legation? Yes. Please do for me a favor. Tell your Mr. Walsh that Mrs. Falcon would like to go on the airplane to Sweden. Ask him to arrange passage at once. But does your wife know about I'll it? I'll explain to her later. Shh, please. She's coming back. There's something about Seisman I don't like. Well, I... I guess I'll be going. It's nice seeing all of you again. You'll, uh, you'll take care of our little matter. Yes, yes. Goodbye, all. Now, don't bother. I'll find my way. What is this little matter between you and Mr. Corwin? Uh, nothing at all. Carlo, I know you too well for that. Very well. I may as well tell you now. I, uh, I want you to go home to America. It's all arranged. What? What about you? Naturally, I will stay. Afterward, I'll come to America for you. Suppose you're killed. I am a doctor. A bombing plane can't tell an ordinary person from a Nobel it's Prize winner. Don't, don't argue, Miranda. You must go. Why? Why, Carlo? Why? What? Because this is a war for Finnish people. Every one of us knows what he must do. You? What? Why? What are you trained to do but wear lovely clothes and be a charming hostess? This is not your country. It, it's not your war. Now go. This is the country of my husband and my son. Eric will understand. He has American blood. So his he... American blood will tell him it's perfectly all right for me to run away. 
I didn't know you thought so little of me, Carlo. Miranda, please don't put words in my mouth. Then say what you mean, Carlo. Say it. Very well. I... I cannot drive you to safety with lies. You know me too well. The truth is, we've been living in a dream. And now I... I wake up and I'm frightened. I, I shouldn't even talk to you like this. You should never be afraid to say anything to me, darling. Suddenly realize what and where I am. I, I'm a man working in the apparent security of a laboratory. I, I'm trying to defeat insanity, degeneration of the human race. And then a band of pyromaniacs sets fire to the building in which I work. What can I do until the fire is put out? I cannot continue to work. There can be no peace of mind, no freedom from fear... Nobody is immune, not even a scientist in his laboratory. Darling, I can stand this ordeal if I know you are safe, that you are beyond their reach. I love you, and that's the only thing left in my world which is real. I love you. If you love me, Carlo, then this is where I want to be, with you. Mother, Papa, excuse me for interrupting. I, I have to leave now. We're due at the station at five, and I want to see Catry before I go. Of course, of course. To think I should see my son in a uniform. You're going to the north? I'm joining a ski detachment. I take it you know what you're doing, what chance you have against what you face? Yes, Father. I think I know about that. Very well, Eric. There's nothing for us to do then but say goodbye. You're not angry at me for enlisting without telling no, me? No, no, no. I'm not angry. And good luck, son. Goodbye, Mother. Goodbye, Eric. Goodbye, my son. Before I go, I I, I... I want you both to know that I'm... that I'm sorry. I know this is worse for you than, than for me or Katri. If it's any consolation to you, I hope you'll remember... you have a son who at least obeys the fourth commandment. I honor my father... and my mother. Continue now with Act Two of the NBC Star Playhouse production of There Shall Be No Night, starring Frederick March and Florence Eldridge. Miranda? Yes, Carlo. Miranda, come and see my uniform. I'm leaving in an hour. So soon. Yes, Mr. Corween and some soldiers are going to pick me up in an ambulance and drive me to Vipuri. They should be here any minute. You'd, you'd better fix the egg, oh, egg now. Oh, take off the coat until you go. I, I, I don't like to see you in a uniform coat. Oh, don't take it so seriously, my dear. Everything is going well at the front. Huh? And why do they want more doctors at Vipery? I thought there were not many wounded. That is because most of the wounded are frozen to death before they can be brought in. When warmer weather comes, they'll need doctors. Oh, why don't we hear from Eric? It's been a month now he's been on the isthmus. Eric is all right, Miranda. After all, I see all the casualty lists. It isn't easy to write in the Arctic. Ah, oh, that must be Mr. Corwin. He, he said he'd be here right after his New Year's broadcast. I'll get it. Oh, how do 
you doing? Well, Happy nice New Year. See you. Happy New Year. Oh, come in, come in. I was just fixing the eggnog. Well, I may overtax your hospitality. I have three other boys here, all going up front with your husband. Oh, do all please, come please. in. Please, please. Okay, boys. Come on in here. Major, Mrs. Volkonin, Dr. Volkonin, this is Major Rutkowski. Madame. Major. How do you do? And this is the American Expeditionary Force in Finland. <laughs> oh, ben Gitchner of Cincinnati. <laughs> How do you do? And Joe Burnett of Haverford, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Oh, by the way, Ben's an ambulance driver. He used to work for American Express in Paris. Uh-huh. Joe here flies airplanes. He went to Princeton. Oh, uh-huh. Just until they threw me out. <laughs> well, Joe writes poetry. I guess they couldn't stand it. <laughs> what, uh, what about you, Major? Where are you from? I was in the Polish cavalry. Oh, huh? really? How did you manage to get here? Well, the survivors of my regiment were driven into Lithuania by the Nazis. I was working my way to Sweden when the Russians invaded, oh. so I stopped. Uh-huh. And how, how did you how did you get here, Mr. Burnett? I? Oh, I was languishing in a medieval dungeon in Spain for the past couple of years. Oh. He's a little crazy, like most Americans. <laughs> ben here is a pacifist. Really? I used to be. Well, I suppose many of us are in that position. <laughs> well, gentlemen, suppose we have a toast. Mr. Corwin, you, you will propose, please. Huh? I really can't think of anything, oh. Doctor. I have a toast, gentlemen, if I may. I think this will come as a surprise even to my husband. Uh? I learned of it myself only now when I was upstairs with Cartry. Gentlemen, to my grandchild. My friend. May he or she live in a peaceful world. She learned of it just today. But this is an occasion. <laughs> you know, it takes a good deal of courage to have a baby in these times, Mrs. Volkanen. It's almost like being born under a curse. No. No, Mr. Carween. Whatever happens, this child will not be born under a curse. It will be born to the greatest opportunity that any child has ever known. You remember that, Miranda. And be brave. Well, mustn't keep the army waiting, gentlemen. <laughs> Goodbye, Uncle Valdemar. Goodbye, darling. Before we leave, Doctor, I'd like to propose one more toast. Long life to the Republic of Finland. Yeah. yeah. Stand by, Dave. Okay, Gus. This is David Corween in Helsinki. Last night, January 6th, 1940, the Russians, in a determined attempt to surround the Finnish army on the Karelian Isthmus, began making determined attacks along Vipuri Bay. The Manaheim line has been totally shattered. The bombardment has reached 300,000 shells per day. And looking at the ruination of Vipuri this morning, I could not help but think of H.G. Wells' awful prophecy in things to come. Here was the collapse of Western civilization, the beginning of the age of frustration. I return you now to New York. Uh, well, was my level okay, Gus? Well, we're lucky if they heard us at all with all the interference flying around. Guess they're in a pretty rough spot up there in Vipuri, huh? Yeah, it's pretty bad, Gus. Isn't that where Valkonen went to set up a field hospital? I think so. Ah, uh, oh, Joe know more about that. Hmm? Tell me, how was the bath, Joe? Ah, uh, like a dream. Hey, you got a drink? On the dresser. Last bottle of scotch in Finland. Help yourself. Uh, thanks. Joe, when are you going back to the front? Oh, when they get that flying fish of mine operating again. Almost fell apart this morning. If they don't hurry up, the war will be over before they get it off the ground. 
You think so? Well, it won't be long now. Well, how do you know, Joe? Because this morning I... Now, look, uh, can you keep this confidential? Why, I won't tell a soul, except the AP, UP, and NBC. Well, they sent me out to reconnoiter. I was flying low. All of a sudden, I saw some staff cars. I dived down to give them a burst when I saw that they weren't Russians. They were Nazis. Gave me a kind of a thrill. I really let them have it. I thought it was about time for the Nazis to be taking a hand in this operation. <laughs> I guess they've had enough stalling and want the Russians to really get on to business. Well, I'd like a few more licks before we close up shop. Hey, uh, you got a clean shirt? In the other room. Yes. Fix Joe up with some clean stuff, will you? Right. Come in here, Joe. Sure, thanks. Oh, who could that be? Come in. Hello, Dave. Am I disturbing you? Why, Miranda, come in. Not at all. I heard about Eric being wounded. I haven't been able to get to the hospital yet, but I'm... You needn't go, Dave. Eric died this morning. Oh, I'm terribly sorry. Would you... Is there anything I can do? That's why I came. You met Cotty Alquist. Well, yes, we, we drank a toast. Well, Cotty and Eric were married this morning in the hospital before he died. Oh, I didn't realize... That... War makes for strange arrangements, Dave. She isn't well, and I've made arrangements to get her to Norway and then to New York. What can I do to help? I need $50 in American money. Why, of course. Will it be enough? Yes. You see, our Finnish money is completely worthless in other countries now. I hope it doesn't inconvenience you. Miranda, I'm very proud that you came to me. Ah, here. Thank you. We had an awful time persuading her... I wish you were going with her. Oh, I wish I could. She'll, she'll have a bad time all alone there. Perhaps she'll have a son. And he'll grow up to be a nice, respectable New Englander and go to Harvard and... wonder why he has an odd name like Vulcanen. Did you... Uh, did your husband know about Eric? Well, I sent a letter, but you know how disorganized everything is. Do you know where he is? He was on Vipery when I last heard. He wrote that things were going badly and he was trying to organize a field hospital. The other one was bombed out. They, they're getting closer all the time, aren't they? I'm afraid so. It won't be long now before they reach us. That's why I'm so desperate to get Cotry out of the country. It means one little link with the future. <laughs> it gives us an illusion of survival. Perhaps... Perhaps it isn't just an illusion. Perhaps not. Well, goodbye, Dave. Goodbye, Miranda. Doesn't look as if we're going to find any place for a hospital around here, Doctor. Uh, keep, uh, keep going, Ben. Okay. How's the arm, Major Rutkowski? Not bad. It'll be all right. This is one heck of a war. I don't even know if this is Russian-occupied territory or not. There, there's the building. Stop up there. Looks like a schoolhouse. What do you think, Major? We might as well cry. I'll scout uh, it. You two wait here. All right. 
Hello? Anybody there? Lift your hands and come in. Who are you? We're not Russians and we're not armed. Okay. Lower your hands. Well, glad to see you. I'm a bit jumpy these days. Been sitting here for six hours now. English? Name of Gosden. I don't rightly know what my rank is, but I call myself Sergeant. Uh -huh. Who are you? Ben Gitchner, American. Medical Corps? And the doctor and I are. We've got a Polish infantry major in the ambulance with a bad arm. Thought we might hold up here. Well, you're quite welcome. I'll wave your friends to come along in. Right. How'd you get out here? Long story. Wife and two children evacuated to Cornwall. Lost my job in a furniture store. Too old for the British Army. Nothing to read in the papers except news of heroic little Finland. So here I am. And where I shall be tomorrow, I really can't say. Oh, in here, Doctor. This is Sergeant Garson. Uh, uh, don't bother saluting. Any more men here? Trust me, sir. I was with Captain Verti's command, and we got shelled bits. I stopped here for a rest. This uh, schoolhouse would do well for a field ambulance station. Uh, too exposed. <laughs> like Finland, eh? Small, clean, and exposed. Hey, must have left school quickly. You see? Someone was riding on the blackboard. Yeah. You know, Doctor, I've been wanting to ask you a question. Yes, Ben. About your book. There's a lot in it I don't understand, but at the end, it really mixes me up. Well, what, what is it at the end? Oh, well, listen, i uh, got it here. I've been reading it in the ambulance. Mm. How long, O oh Lord, before we shall hear the sound of the seventh angel of the apocalypse? Have you forgotten the promise of St. John? And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither the light of the sun, for the Lord giveth them light. Now, how, can, how come you finish your scientific work with a quotation from the Bible? The Jewish mystic who wrote those words somehow knew that man will find the true name of God in his own forehead, in the mysteries of his own mind. And there shall be no night there. That is the, is the basis of all the work I have done. You can't deny that the light is going out pretty fast everywhere else. No. No, it is just beginning to burn with a healthy flame. I know this because I've seen it, Ben. I've seen it in all kinds of men of all races and all varieties of faith. They are coming to consciousness. Look at the millions of men now under arms and, and all those afraid that arms may be thrust upon them. Are there any illusions of glory among them? None whatever. Now, isn't that progress? Well, far be it for me to argue, Doctor, but I can't see the difference whether men go to war because of illusions of glory or just the spirit of grim resignation. There is a difference. Illusions, when shattered, leave men hollow. But grim resignation makes a man say, this is an evil job, but I have to do it. And when men say that, they are beginning to ask, but why do I have to do it? Why must this evil go on forever? <laughs> Forgive me, gentlemen, I, I think I am lecturing at the Medical Institute. <laughs> but, but the Russians are only a short distance away. This may be my last lecture, so permit me to finish. What you hear now, this, this terrible sound that fills the earth, it is the death rattle, the end of the primordial beast and the, the ultimate triumph of evolution, when men shall become genuinely human instead of part bogus angel, part brute. What's that? Motorcycle. Looks like a dispatch rider. No, no. Holy smokes, doctor, it's Joe, Joe Burnett. Hey, Joe, in here. Hello, Ben. Well, Joe. Uh, doctor. Hi, Major. Where did you drop from? Uh, drop is right. <laughs> I was shot down about an hour ago. Managed to snag this motorcycle and saw your ambulance outside. Since it's the only Buick in Finland, I figured you were in here. Uh -huh. How do things look? Bad. They were bringing up everything. How's Helsinki? Well, I was there yesterday. Uh, Dr. Vulcan, and mm -hmm. I don't know how to say it, but I want you to know that you have my sympathy. 
sympathy. But why? Well, you... You don't know about your son? No. He's dead. Yes. He, uh... He died in the hospital of wounds. When was this? Well, maybe two days ago. My wife? Is she well? Yes. I, uh... I'm sorry to have to be the one who tells you. Thank you, thank you. I'm sorry you had to undergo this embarrassment. Well, uh, you fellows better get out of here. The Russians are bringing up reserves by the truckload. The Finns are forming to drive them back, or try anyway, about three miles up the road. They don't have many men. There are five of us here. I'm a non-combatant, Major. So is Dr. Balkan. There's no compulsion if you don't wish to go. Well, I was headed to the airbase at Rankonan, but if they need another infantryman... I think you are much more valuable as a flyer. You'd better keep going to Rankonan. I hate to do it. It's an order. Yes, sir. I'll go to join the reserves. I've had my rest now. Doctor? I, uh, I'll, uh, I'll go with you and the sergeant. First, I'd, uh, I'd like to write a letter, if I may. Uh, perhaps you could... Take it with you, Mr. Burnett. I'll try to deliver it, Doctor. Excuse me for a moment. I'll, I'll write it in the next room. Go right ahead. Oh, poor man. You fellows know he believes in the teachings of Christ. He believes them just like they were scientific facts that can yet be proved. He told me you can't resist evil by building marginal lines, that the true defenses are in man himself. So now there's nothing left for the great thinker to do but take a gun and go up there and shoot. How about you, Ben? What does the conscientious objector have to say about shooting a gun? An ambulance is one thing, but a gun kills men. What do you think I say, Major? When I think of the times I've sworn never to kill. Once I lost a good job back in the States because I thought I was a Red, I've spent hours arguing that the Soviet Union was the greatest sociological advance in history. Now, go ahead, kid me. What do you think our chances are, Major? Nothing. I uh, take it you fear we're all condemned to death. Yes, Sort of a silly way to end one's life, isn't it? Oh, well, uh, I know a fellow who was hit by a taxi cab in Downing Street. Dr. Volkanen is the one who suffers most. He's an optimist. He will be better dead. Why do you say that? My wife, my baby, my mother, my father, and Warsaw were there when the Nazis came. My wife is 24 years old. She's very beautiful. I read in Cardinal Holon's report to the Pope that the good-looking women have been sent back to Germany to be whores. Well, time to go, gentlemen. Here's the, uh, here's the letter, Mr. Burnett. Good luck, man. Uh, if you ever get to Cincinnati, Joe, send a word to my mother, Mrs. Bessie Gitchner. She's in the phone book. I will, Ben, if I get back. So long. All right, gentlemen. Major. Yes? Do you, uh... You have a gun for me? My revolver. Thank you. Augustine, can I use your rifle? Help yourself. I'm ready. Uh, before we go, Doctor. Yes? I think you'd better take off that Red Cross armband. Listen, Dave, can't you get his wife and the old man out of Helsinki? It wouldn't matter if I could, Joe. They refuse to leave. They're going to wait here for whatever comes. The Russians, the Nazis, or both. 
They've even planned how they'll burn the house down. What? Oh, yes, that's a finished tradition like the scorched earth policy of the Chinese. She doesn't care. She wants to stay here and die the way her husband did. Well, it's a pity. That's just what it is, Joe. Three months ago, the Soviet troops marched in. They had brass bands and loads of propaganda with them. They thought it'd be a grand parade through Finland like May Day in Red Square. So now, several hundred thousand men have been killed. Millions of lives have been ruined. The Soviet Union has been reduced from the status of a great power to that of a great fraud. And the Nazis have won another bloodless victory. She's coming in, Dave. Take it easy. Well, we've washed all the dishes and put them away neatly. And now Uncle Valdemar and I haven't a thing to do till supper. Oh, do sit down, Dave, Mr. Burnett. I'm sorry, Mrs. Vulcan, and I have to report for duty. Oh, I'm sorry. But thank you so much for coming and bringing the letter and telling me about that little schoolhouse. I'm glad I could get here. You've been very kind to me. I won't ever forget you or Dr. Vulcanen. Goodbye, Mr. Sedestrom. So long, Dave. I'll probably be seeing you. Goodbye, Joe. Oh, I hope he comes through all right. He might. What are you planning to do, Mrs. Valkenden? You can't just sit here and wait for them. We have our plans, Dave. Here in this plaza. Guns? We got them at the hospital for wounded soldiers. Uncle Valdemar and I have been practicing. Oh, not shooting, of course, but just learning how to work the mechanism. When we see them coming up the path from the shore, we'll light the fire. It's already down in the cellar. And then we'll go into the garden behind the stone wall. The guns and ammunition. You see, you put in a clip like this. And then you shove the bolt. And after each shot, you twist it and pull it back to throw out the empty shell. What do you think of that, Dave? My revolutionary ancestors would be quite proud of me. I guess you really mean it. We do. Well, I wish you luck. I have to leave pretty soon. Oh, before you go, Dave, I'd like a favor. Okay. When you take this package and this letter, the package contains Carlos Sarn pictures of Freud and Pavlov and Carell and the Mayos. And then there's the Nobel gold medal. I'd like you to give them to Cotri to keep for her child. Her Boston address is on it. Carlo wrote this letter soon after he heard of Eric's death. He wanted to comfort me in his own curious way. Would you like to hear it? Please. He says, In this time of our own grief, it is not easy to summon up the philosophy which has been formed from long study of the sufferings of others. But I must do it, and you must help me. You see... Carlo wanted to make me feel that I'm stronger and wiser. Go on, Miranda. I have often read the words which Pericles spoke over the bodies of the dead in the dark hour when the light of the Athenian democracy was being extinguished by the Spartans. He told the mourning people that he couldn't give them any of the old words which tell how fair and noble it is to die in battle. Those empty words were old even then, 24 centuries ago. But he urged them to find revival in the memory of the commonwealth which they together had achieved. And he promised them that the story of their commonwealth would never die, but would go on far away, woven into the fabric of other men's lives. 
I believe that these words can now be said of our own dead and our own commonwealth. I have always believed in the mystic truth of the resurrection. The great leaders of the mind and spirit, Socrates, Christ, Lincoln, were all done to death that the full measure of their contribution to human experience might never be lost. Now, the death of our son is only a fragment in the death of our country. But Eric, and the others who gave their lives are also giving mankind a symbol, a little symbol to be sure, but a clear one, of man's unconquerable aspiration to dignity and freedom and purity in the sight of God. When I made that radio speech, you remember, Dave? Yes, indeed. I quoted from St. Paul. I repeat those words to you now, darling. We glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. There are many here from all different countries, fine men. Those Americans who were at our house on New Year's Day, and that nice Polish officer, Major Rakowski. They're all here. They are waiting for me now, so I must close this with all my love. Here it is, Dave. Take good care of it. I shall, Mrs. Valkenin. But it may be a long time before I can deliver it. It will be a long time before my grandchild learns to read. I, I have to be going now. Goodbye, Mr. Sedestrom. You will write to us from Stockholm. I promise. We'll miss you very much, Dave. You've really become part of our life here in Helsinki. Thank you. Goodbye. <clears throat> Mayor Miranda, we're alone now. Nothing to do but uh, wait. Play some music, Uncle. I'll fix a pot of coffee. You're, um, you're sure you want to do it this way? Yes, Uncle. I'm sure. Very well. been listening to the NBC Star Playhouse production of There Shall Be No Night by Robert E. Sherwood, starring Frederick March and Florence Eldridge. There Shall Be No Night, the award-winning play by Robert E. Sherwood, as performed on the NBC Star Playhouse, November 29, 1953. We're grateful to big broadcast listener Paul Forty for suggesting it. It brings us almost to the end of this edition of the big broadcast. Earlier tonight, we heard the detective Candy Matson refer to the Louis Jordan Ella Fitzgerald record Stone Cold Dead in the Market, a very bleak treatment of domestic violence, and the first of Mr. Jordan's many number one hits, recorded for Decca Records October 8, 1945, in New York City. Let's hear it now. And for co-producer Jill Arald Bailey and audio engineers Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd, this is Murray Horwitz. 
Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. He's stone cold dead in the market. He's stone cold dead in the market. He's stone cold dead in the market. I killed nobody but me husband. Last night I went out drinking. When I came home, I gave her a beating. So she caught up the rolling pin and went to work on my head till she bossed it in. I like old dead in the market. Stone cold dead in the market. I like old dead in the market. She killed nobody but her husband. With the pot on the frying pan, I lick him with the pot on the frying pan. I lick him with the pot on the frying pan. Then if I kill him, he had it coming. Man, he's stone cold dead in the market. He's stone cold dead in the market. He's stone cold dead in the market. I killed nobody but me husband. They swearing to kill her. My family is swearing to kill her. His family is swearing to kill me. And if I kill him, he had it coming. Hey, like old dead in the market, child. Cold dead in the market, child. I like old dead in the market. She killed nobody but her husband. <laughs> One thing that I am sure He ain't going to beat me no more So I tell you that I doesn't care If I was to die in the electric chair Man, he's stone cold dead in the market Stone cold dead in the market He's stone cold dead in the market I kill nobody but me husband Hey child, I'm coming back and bash you on your head one more time no, no, man, you can't do that. You stone cold dead in the market murder. Stone cold dead in the market. The criminal is stone cold dead in the market. I kill nobody but me husband.